This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I am absolutely excellent. You, you know what, Conrad? You can call me Professor Pritchard. What? Yeah, man, Professor. I, I think I, I think I got uh, uh, promoted in, in the last few days. I've been profing and stuff, doing different things as of late. <laughs> profing? Help me out. What uh, profing? Well, you know, profing, just pontificating and, and, and learning people. Oh, God. Oh, God. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of what happens. It, it, it was, I, I just did a, a guest lecture, let's call it, for, for Keith Wright, who is in charge of the communications department, Delaware Technical Community College. And I got to interact with his class. It's a media class all about podcasting. So they went to, to quote him, the king of podcasting. And since, you know, they, they couldn't get, uh, Austin or JR or Jericho or Conrad Thompson, they, they settled on me. <laughs> Oh but I want to thank all the students because I got to I got to uh, spend an hour with them last night and it was a lot of fun. They asked a lot of great questions and it was just uh, interesting as hell for me and I hope it was just as much for them as well. Well, so there you go. I uh, I can't say that I ever expected that this would be the case, but you know this podcast has uh, gotten us in a lot of unexpected places and and recently you found yourself. Back working with somebody you probably thought you never would again. Our great friend, Mr. Sean Mooney, is in the podcast game. He is. And I found my, you know, we, we talked and Sean called me out of the blue to ask me if I would be his first guest on his new podcast, Primetime with Sean Mooney. And I said, of course. And we started talking and I cut him off. I said, you know what? Let's do it on the air. And we, we reconnected on the air of his show and you can check that out over at the MLW radio network. And, uh, man, we talked for two hours, had a good old time just reminiscing, but Sean Mooney was one of the, uh, the first guys I, I had a hand in hiring, brought him in for the event center. And we talked about how the event center came about and it was a blast just reminiscing and talking old stories with an old colleague. So if you haven't already, check out Primetime with Sean Mooney. It's at MLWRadio.com. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button. It's free, and uh, he's doing some fun stuff over there. i got to say, as an old-school wrestling fan, it's kind of cool to hear some of the voices we grew up on between him and Tony Schiavone. Uh, it's, it's a pretty fun deal, and you can pick up both of those at MLWRadio.com. Let's talk about last week, Bruce. We've got some, uh, some loose ends from Doink I want to run, run through right fast. Are you ready? Go ahead, run on through them, because I'm going to run through them. First of all, I made a mistake. Uh, it happens more often than I'd like to admit, but Doink Bash. actually debuted at Survivor Series 1992. He just did an appearance on the show. He didn't actually wrestle. 
Uh, his wrestling debut was what we said, January 93. But talk us through the debut there, just making a, a one-off appearance, or so it felt, at Survivor Series 1992. Just another way to introduce the character. And in those, in those days, we really wanted guys to have a lot of television time before they appeared on a major event, like a Survivor Series or a Royal Rumble. And it was a way to get exposure and kind of do it in a little different way. So that was his first. But you are correct. His, his first actual match was, wasn't until January, later that year. But we had done vignettes and had him appear uh, in the crowd and different things. So that's all it was. I wanted to mention this to you, too. There's lots of rumor and innuendo about Doink and the British Bulldog. Um, I read on the Wrestling Observer newsletter message board. I know there's been a story floated around by several people, including Brett, that one of the reasons Bulldog was fired in 1992 is he flat out refused the job to Doink. But the timing of that doesn't really make sense since Bulldog was canned in November 92 and Doink never made his in-ring debut until January 93. So I guess it's possible that Doink was penciled in to do jobs on the house show loops prior to being fired. And uh, that's kind of how it all came to be. Maybe there's some freestyling on the message boards. Maybe that's why Doink's debut was delayed. Clear up the rumor and innuendo. Was Bulldog ever slated to work with Doink? Because apparently Brett's put that out there, and even I missed that last week. Well, no, the rumor's not true, and, and Bulldog was let go for other reasons. And uh, no, that, that wasn't the case at all, as a matter of fact. And, and, I, and I believe that another part of that rumor was that the Hearts, uh, that the Heart clan, if you will, had a problem with Doink and, and were against Bulldog working with him, which that doesn't hold water either because he worked all around the horn with Bret Hart. So, no, there, there's no truth to that. That's just, again, rumor and innuendo and, and bullshit probably from some other story that people put together and came to their own conclusions on. Uh, we had another quick question here. Uh, I, I kind of forgot we mentioned this, but I guess you alluded to it on our Double J episode. There was something about Double J, Jeff Jarrett, and Doink. Any follow-up on that? What I alluded to, and and, and thank you for, for bringing that up, because I even alluded to that when we were talking about it uh, for the polls, um, was Jerry Jarrett. Uh, when Jerry Jarrett was working up at WWE as a consultant doing some different things and felt that he had been undermined by myself and Pat Patterson, that Vince McMahon put Jerry Jarrett in charge of the Saturday morning television show by the name of Mania. So Jerry Jarrett was responsible for a few weeks uh, during his time and during his tenure in the WWF. He was writing Mania. And his first attempt at writing Mania was during a time that uh, Lex Luger and Yokozuna were hot and Undertaker and, and there were, there were a lot of hot issues. And, and one of the, we, we were running three towns, an A town, a B town, a C town. And kind of in the middle of the card in the C towns was a match between Jeff Jarrett and Doink the Clown. Um, two name guys that were working with each other. We did a little thing with them on TV, but they were um, on the card in the sea towns. So Jerry took it upon himself to take mania, the show on Saturday mornings on the USA network and take out of six segments, 
take three segments and devote it to the doink double J story. Now, the big scheme of things, you want to focus your attention on, on the champion. You want to focus your attention on Brett. You want to focus your attention on Luger. You want to focus your attention on Yoko and Undertaker and the top guys because that's what all of the other uh, shows are doing. And you really want to concentrate on what's on top. So it didn't look good at all for Jeff's dad to take over the writing of WWF Mania and for him to be featured very heavily for more than half of the show. And so Vince um, just happens to watch this damn show. And, of course, is was the norm when Vince would be unhappy with something on television. That time he would usually call me and say, what the hell? I say, hey, I, not it. You told Pat and I to not supervise those shows anymore and that Jerry Jarrett was totally in, in charge of those. And I said, I have no idea what he did. I didn't look at it. Didn't watch it. Don't have any feedback for you. Um, nothing. God damn, Bruce, you can't let him bury himself like that. I'm like, I didn't. Well, you know. And so we leave for TV that day and Vince is like, God damn, I got to talk to him. And it was Vince. Pat, myself, and Jerry Jarrett driving to the towns. It's when we were kind of uh, working in the Northeast doing our television tapings. And we stopped at a rest area to uh, go pee-pee, which was during a time that Pat and I would always run. It was, it was a moment we could get away from Vince, from being in a car with him all the time. And Vince decides this is when he's going to take Jerry Jarrett for a walk and talk to him about how he wrote the Mania show. And so Vince and Jerry go, go off and they take a walk and Pat goes off and has a smoke and I go to the bathroom. We come back to the car and Vince and Jerry come walking by and Jerry stays at the car with Pat and I and Vince goes on to the bathroom and, and Jarrett looks at us as man, I, I have never been yelled at like that in my life. Pat and I look at each other and said, what, what do you mean? What'd you get yelled at for? He said, he told me that that show was the worst thing he'd ever seen. He said that it, it'd probably be a good idea if I didn't feature Jeff as much. I said, that's all he said? Uh-huh. I was like, fuck you. I said, goddamn, you didn't get yelled at. You didn't even get a goddamn stern talking to you. You want to know what the fuck it's like to get yelled at by the man? Hang around me for more than fucking two hours during the day, and you can see what it's like to get yelled at by the son of a bitch. And he just, Jerry was just so distraught that Vince told him he didn't like the show. Well, you know. Well, I know you told that story before in another episode, but we didn't hit it last week, so I'm glad we got it there. Real quick, um, although that was the longest story in the world, uh, John Maloof, we had a question about him. Did he briefly portray uh, Doink? I don't remember him at all. I have no idea who John Maloof is. Uh, anything else you want to add about uh, further Doink appearances? He made some appearances even after you were gone. Um, I, I think he did a, a spot with Heath Slater even just a few years ago. But the original Doink, uh, Matt Bourne, did get one last appearance I believe it was at the uh, Raw 15th anniversary. Any sort of follow-up on any of that? Yeah, it just was a you know, way to come back and make one last hurrah and have the original Doink. But anything really beyond that, there really wasn't any interest in bringing the Doink character back on any permanent basis or Matt Bourne, for that matter. Um, 
And they're just for so many doings. And I didn't realize this too until literally right before we went to tape. You know, your Alabama doink. Right. I was kidding when I was referring to him as Alabama doink. But this goof is actually uh, advertising himself as the WWF doink the clown. Yeah. Roll time. Ah, That pisses me off. That's bullshit. Welcome to the wrestling business. You know what I mean? I know, but good God. Let's talk about next week's poll. Uh, this was probably one of our more fun polls this past week. We had The Rock, which is what you're going to hear after the break. Uh, we also had Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, Diesel. Uh, it came pretty close. Bret and Shawn were really, really close for second place. But ultimately, The Rock pulled it out. Was that a surprise to you, Bruce? Not really. Uh, I, I thought that uh, those were my top three. I knew Diesel would, would kind of be in that distant fourth. But uh, I really thought Sean was going to pull it out. I, I kind of would have thought that Sean was going to win, too. I'm sure we'll cover him again some other time long form. But before we get to some Survivor Series anniversary shows, which you know we're going to have to hit some up in November, I wanted to do something uh, kind of fun and do another wrestler profile next week, but this time with tag teams. And I think people liked it when we gave the poll options up front. So we'll do it again right now. How's that sound, Bruce? What the hell? We're just we're just flipping the script all over again. Just when they think they got the answers, we change the questions, baby. You ready? I'm ready. Poll topic number one, the Hardy Boys. Now, if the Hardy Boys are selected, we're not going to necessarily cover all of their single runs. Jeff Hardy probably deserves one all on his own. No, if the Hardy Boys win, we're not going to talk about broken math. That didn't happen uh, when Bruce was there. But what might we talk about if the Hardy Boys win? Well, we are going to talk about how when the Hardys first started coming in to do jobs for the WWF, how Jeff lied about how old he was, lied about his age, said he was older than he actually was, how they used to make their own outfits, and why they actually got the first contract that they did. Who recommended the Hardys to come into our camp to be considered for full-time on the roster? And then, of course, we will go through their entire career and the influence of Michael P.S. Hayes do, 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 on their career and their whole beginning run. So we, we should remind you, of course, Bruce was there until 2008. So we'll cover as much of that as we can without going into too much detail on singles runs. Uh, but we can probably fit almost everything in from two, till 2008. Uh, up next, another duo who went on to do great things, even as singles. Edge and Christian, of course, they've got a podcast over at Podcast One. Edge went on to become a WWE Hall of Famer, and both of these guys were world champions. But before all that, they were one hell of a tag team. What might we talk about if Edge and Christian win the poll? Well, we're going to talk about Sterling Sex. Was it Sterling Sexton? Sexton or Sexton Hardcastle. Hardcastle? That's it. Yeah, Sexton Hardcastle. Yeah. And what the hell was uh, Jay's name? Christian. He had some other name, but but these were two Canadians that came to us uh, from Carl DeMarco, uh, independent of each other, but they were good friends, trained together, came through a camp, and how they became Edge and Christian, how they became the brood, and what we saw in these two guys, their reaction when I first approached them at a spot show that we did up in the Northeast and said, hey, guys, would you like to be full-time with the WWF? Uh, two of the greatest talents, Edge already in the Hall of Fame, and Christian, sure to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, his uh, Christian's other name was Christian Cage. Uh, Christian so, Cage, yes, okay. Um, Which he used later on. Absolutely. 
Whole topic number three, uh, one of my favorite tag teams of all time, and I'm going to say they're underrated because they're probably not going to win, but I still love them, so we're putting them up. It's the Dudley Boys. What might we talk about if Devon gets the table? Why would you think the Dudleys wouldn't win, man? I, I think that the Dudleys have a really good chance of winning. I love this poll, all, all, every, all four of them. Uh, but we're going to talk about the Dudleys and when they first came in. We're going to talk about the initial meeting that the Dudleys had in the WWF offices and what Bubba and Devon claimed that I made them do after that first meeting. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that what Bubba and Devon claim is not true, but I'll give you their version and then I'll give you the truth as well. But also just the ascension of the Dudley boys and the, the hard, they had a hard road to fight and make themselves what they later on became in the WWF. Last but certainly not least, one of the greatest tag teams of all time that just feels like a little bit of a happy accident. Whole topic number four is the New Age Outlaws. What might we talk about? If the New Age Outlaws win the poll. Well, we're going to talk about how Rockabilly was a blessing in disguise for Billy Gunn and how the original and real Double J was a blessing for the road dog, Jesse James, and how these two guys came together, whose idea it initially was uh, to actually put Billy and Jesse together and just how they came up through the ranks and the different contributions that they had in the wrestling business, specifically in the WWF, because they were part of DX, how that all came about. And uh, we'll even talk about the invasion into uh, WCW with those guys. They were a big part of that. So there you go. Go vote right now. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And while you're there, throw us a like. We are cruising towards our very first bonus show. We're going to cover SummerSlam 1991. With enough likes, we're going to cover Survivor Series 1991, and then Tuesday in Texas, and then the 1992 Royal Rumble. Let's make it happen. It's free to go like the page. Why wouldn't you do that? It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. All right, all right, all right. Let's do it, Bruce. What everybody's here for, it's time for What Happened When The Rock Came to the World Wrestling Federation uh, finally, we are covering The Rock here on Something to Wrestle. And hopefully you smell what we're cooking, man. This has got to be one of our most requested topics. We're not going to cover The Rock's whole career. We're going to carry you through his first two years in the business. Uh, and we'll give you a little bit of background as to the real person. Uh, and then we'll cover some more stuff, I'm sure. We'll probably have like half a dozen Rock episodes. Right, Bruce? At least. So, uh, Dwayne Johnson was born on May 2nd, 1972 in California. And of course, his parents are Ada Johnson and most of you know, Rocky Johnson. Uh, Rocky is a former WWF world tag team champion with Tony Atlas. They beat the wild Samoans back in 83 and they were the first African American tag team champions in the WWF. And of course, Rocky is in the hall of fame. He went in in 2008. What interaction have you had with Rocky Johnson over the years, Bruce? I, you know what, when you talk about me, Rocky Johnson, pivotal, uh, in my wrestling career, um, when you talk about when I started 10 years old, selling posters in the Sam Houston Coliseum, do you know who that first poster was? Rocky Johnson, Rocky Johnson and Rocky soul man. Johnson was the first poster I ever sold, had pictures of him with George Foreman. He was a sparring partner for George Foreman back in the day. Um, a hell of a boxer in his own right. 
And I actually met Rocky as a young man, and my brother Tom worked with Rocky through the years. But I've known Rocky off and on uh, for many years since I was a kid. Well, so there you go. A little bit of Rocky Johnson knowledge I didn't expect. Uh, Dwayne's maternal grandfather was the high chief Peter Maivia, uh, and he wrestled all over the world, uh, even places like New Zealand. Of course, he was a big deal in San Francisco and many others. Uh, but he also promoted the Polynesian Pacific Pro Wrestling promotion, and he, too, went in the WWE Hall of Fame in 2008. Did you ever run into uh, the high chief in your years in the business? When when I was a kid, same thing in Houston, but but only as a kid. I never I never really got to have any conversation with Peter, but his reputation was something that is legendary in the business as a legitimate tough guy. Long before there was a a Ming Haku, there was the High Chief Peter Maivia, and he was a legitimate badass, and it was even evident by the tattoos that he had. He had tattoos from pretty much the middle of his back all the way down to his knees. And it covered his entire body all the way down to his knees. So his ass, everything was all tattooed. And they did it the old fashioned way where they, where they would do it with a, with a hammer and these needles and, and they would hammer the ink into the body and extremely painful and grueling, uh, long ceremony for him to get these ceremonial tattoos. But Peter Maivia was a legit high chief in Samoa. So uh, The Rock's grandmother, Peter Maivia's wife, was one of the few female promoters in wrestling. She took over this Polynesian Pacific Pro territory in 82 after Peter passed away, uh, and she ran it until 1988. Uh, it seems like everybody who ever worked for her spoke very highly of her. Did you ever meet her? What was her reputation as a promoter? Yes, I have met her. Uh, she's another legit badass. <laughs> I, I would put Leah up there uh, with, with Peter and Ming and everybody else as far as whipping somebody's ass. But she was class all the way. One of the sweetest. Rock's grandmother and mom, two of the sweetest ladies you'd ever want to meet in your life. Um, just really nice people. And she obviously Samoan royalty as well. But I would say she's wrestling royalty too. Now, it's kind of been joked about this uh, Samoan dynasty that it's really all one family, and then the only one who's not in that family is Samoa Joe. So I guess there's two famous Samoas from <laughs> Samoan wrestling family. There's all of them and then Joe, um, but they, they have a last name, and, and that's what it really is. Share that with everybody. Anawai. See, there you go. So the Anawai includes... Uh, everybody, right? I mean, you're talking about the Wild Samoans. You're talking about Roman Reigns. You're talking about uh, Rosie and Jamal and the Usos. Yokozuna. And Yokozuna. I mean, just on and on and on and on. And and their cousin and their cousins of, of the Rock and the Maivias. So you've got, uh, and how they started was often Sika had come over from the islands and they had settled in uh, San Francisco. And that's where they when they were just fans, Pat Patterson used to dread coming back from the ring on a hot finish because especially working with Peter, because you had to fight your way through the Samoans and the, the two Samoans that kind of led that group of Samoans in San Francisco was Afa and Sika and Hawaii. What companies would you want to work for? 
Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. So it was their, their uh, um, yeah, that's a hell of a family, man. I wouldn't want to meet any of them. I, I wouldn't. It would be interesting to be at a family reunion. Of well, here's what I wanted to ask because, and I've always wondered this, you know, I guess it was Hulk Hogan is the first guy I remember saying it all the time, but he would drop the brother on you, you know, he, brother this, brother that. So it became like one of the words in wrestling. And now there's a tag team on the WWE called the Usos and Uso Samoan for brother, right? Correct. Yes. So at a family reunion of sorts, uh, instead of brother, 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 like you might get at a wrestling convention, it's Uso or Oos over and over and over. Oos. 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 How crazy is that? It's so funny. I don't know that a lot of wrestling fans were, were in the loop on the fact that the tag team, the Usos, is actually Samoan for brothers. Yeah. So the real- and, and that is how they greet each other. It, it's if, if you're a part of the family, it's oos. Oos, yeah. Uh. And of course, you know, all the, the rock is considered related to all these guys because his mother is from Samoan descent because of her dad, Peter Mavia. And the rumor and innuendo is that Peter actually disapproved of his daughter marrying a wrestler in Rocky Johnson. It feels like nobody, and we even heard this from, from Helen Hart, she didn't want her boys to go into wrestling and she darn sure didn't want her girls to marry wrestlers. So of course that happened. Uh, is that also the case the way you know it, that everybody wasn't really in the loop on, Hey, go marry a wrestler. Yeah. I think that would be pretty, pretty much the norm. I, I know, uh, I, I'm not going to say that I don't want my daughter to uh, date or marry a wrestler because that's exactly what she would go and do. So baby, go marry a wrestler. I want you to marry a wrestler so bad. That would make my life complete. Do you want to so give anyway, her, I know there won't happen. Do you want to give her a Twitter handle right now? So our listeners can tweet her. Uh, my baby girl does not have Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. Oh, wow. You're one of those dads. Are you going through your yes. phone every night too? You know it. Now she's 18 and graduated high school and you're still doing this. She's in college and, and, and you're still going through her phone. She lives in my house. This I pay for her phone. This is amazing. I love it. What? Uh, let's talk about the family. The, the most amazing thing about this family is it feels like almost all of them are, are pretty damn good wrestlers. I mean, what do you think it is about this Samoan culture and this family in particular that made all these guys such performers? I mean, we, na- we named them a minute ago, but. Yokozuna, Rikishi, Tonga Kid, Umaga, Manu, Jimmy, Jay, Roman. I mean, on and on and on. And they're natural athletes, uh, every single one of them. And you look at, you look, let's take Yokozuna, for example. When Yoko came in, Yoko was 350 pounds and he moved like a 180 pounder. Um, they, it's just a, it's, it's a dynasty, man. <laughs> just a legacy. And they've got, they've got a gene. 
that has been carried on and passed down all the way down. I remember Roman Reigns when Roman was playing high school football. And they they would send us pictures and, and he'd seek a son. And it would be like, you know, hey, this kid got named All American. He's gonna be he's gonna be one to watch. And of course, you know, Jim Ross, God damn, plays football. You know, gotta love him. You know, he's a football player. Jim's gonna love him. And so we we followed his career from the time. Right. He was a stud. He was an All American. He was badass. So were uh, the Usos. Both of them were badasses in high school on the football field. So there, it's a family of athletes and a family of studs. I mean, all the way down, it just it just carries on. And, and I had the opportunity. I did a, uh, a convention in in New Jersey, in New Jersey or New York somewhere recently, and the Samoans were in a room by themselves across the hall from me. And we were doing Jim Cornette and I were doing a, a taped thing over there, and I kept hearing them and everything. And I said, you know what, guys, I've got to take a break here. I have to walk across the hall. I have to go pay my respects because it's kind of like you know the Godfather. And I had to go over and just pay my respects to Afa and Sika. And, of course, uh, Sammy was there and, and Lloyd and uh, Rikishi. But I've known all these guys since since I was a kid. And Afa and Sika have both always been great to me. And um, But, yeah, it was kind of like going over and kissing the ring and just paying homage to Afa Sika. So, obviously – being a wrestling kid, you're going to bounce around a little bit, especially in the days of the territory. So the rock actually lives in New Zealand for a brief time and then moves to Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, and then after he spends the uh, 10th grade at, um, president William McKinley high school, he moves to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and he's here at freedom high. He plays football, wrestles, does track, and he gets lots of offers, but ultimately decides to go play football. At the University of Miami, of course, the U was a big deal back then. Uh, He was on their 1991 championship team, and then he was hurt, of course. That happens pretty often uh, in the big leagues of college football. But the guy waiting to take his spot was a little fellow named Warren Sapp. He's one of the greatest to ever play that position, so he took his job. Uh, And Alabama whooped that ass for him in 1992. So how about that? The 93 championship game, uh, I believe it was 34-13. I'm sure you were watching that when you were riveted by Alabama rolling tide, right? And that way you say it, rolling tide, rolling. Yeah. Rolling the tide. Yeah. Woo-hoo. yeah. So roll tide on that rock. How about that? Uh, surprisingly, of course, Dwayne doesn't get drafted into the NFL because foreign saps there. Uh, so instead he tries his hand at the Canadian football league and actually joins the Calgary Stampeders, which is kind of fun considering the history that Calgary has for pro wrestling. Uh, he's on the practice team. He's working as a backup linebacker, but eventually is cut in just a few months into his run here. Did you ever have any talks with The Rock about his football career? Obviously, that was his full love and his plan A, but plan B worked out pretty damn good. You think? Um, you know, yeah, he, he loved playing football, and, and his dream was to play in the NFL. But I, I think that he also had a love for wrestling, but he wanted to, and this is me paraphrasing. I, I think that rock is very close with his mom and his mom wasn't really crazy about the wrestling business. 
and her experiences in the wrestling business with, with Rock's dad. And I don't know that she was all that keen on uh, Dwayne following in his father's footsteps. So I think Rocky kind of migrated towards football because maybe that might have made his mom a little bit happier. Well, and obviously I don't know the family, so I'm just freestyling here. But there was a time, too, when being growing up in a wrestling family, uh, especially in the territorial days, there it, there wasn't a lot of stability. So some No, years, you were all over. Some years it's the best year ever, and you're making more money than you know what to do with. And other years, you're just trying to keep the lights on. Is that right? Without a doubt, and you don't know when it's going to end. And you could be on top, you know, one minute, and then you're, a new booker comes in, and you're gone, and you're looking for a new territory and a new place. And you got to pack the U-Haul and move and hope you get over in this new territory. So it, it's not something that most moms or most rational adults would recommend, especially in the time. So it makes sense that you might try to do something else, given what had to be at times financial hardship, you know, and, and uprooting a family and, you know, just the, the craziness that was the wrestling business during the territory days. Uh, there is a, a kind of a fun story before we move on from the rock in football where he goes up into the stands chasing a mascot. Do you remember hearing about that or seeing that? I, I've heard something about it. I don't remember. Uh, go ahead. I, I don't remember it enough to tell it. Well, you know, it's it's Miami. So at the time, they had a little bit of a reputation for being thugs. I'm not saying that. Uh, but Trick Daddy probably would. Uh, this is a time when there's just a lot of swagger, I believe is the word, that the Hurricanes are probably best defined by. And I think there was maybe a little bit of a breakout with some of the opposing teams and fans, and uh, The Rock just decided to have a little fun. So throw it in your Google machine if you'd like to see it. Let's talk about wrestling, though, because after the football thing kind of washes out, he comes home from Calgary and decides, hey, Maybe I'm going to try the family business, and he asks his dad to train him. But according to the rumor and innuendo, Rocky really wasn't in favor of this idea at first, but later agrees to do it, uh, but tells Dwayne something along the lines of it's not going to be easy. And it seems like a logical choice for Dwayne to go into wrestling here. Uh, he's obviously got the pedigree, you know, being third generation. He's a big dude, 6'5", 275 or so. It feels like a natural fit. Uh, what do you remember hearing about The Rock's early days of training? Well, pretty much his early days, he did ask his dad. And uh, Pat Patterson was living down, I don't know if Pat was in Tampa at this time. I know Pat was with us, but he also had a place. So, yeah, his place was in Tampa before he moved to Fort Lauderdale. And Pat and Rocky have always been friends for many, many years. And Pat knows the family. And so... Rocky's working out with his dad, uh, or Rocky's working out with Dwayne. Let's do it that way. And Dwayne is, is getting the bug. He wants to be in wrestling. He wants to learn. And Pat would always go down. Pat always, you know, looking for new talent. And he hears about this. He's got a pedigree. He's a third generation and he sees him working out. He's got the size. He's got the look and. He, he moved. You can watch when you see someone step into the ring for the first time, whether they have it or they don't. And Rock, when he was in the ring, he was at home. So Pat encouraged him. Pat encouraged him to, to continue training and to get better. And when he felt that he had done enough, then he would try and get him some work somewhere. And this was also during the same time that we were starting our developmental system 
So according to the rumor and innuendo, he uses the relationship with Pat to get a couple of tryout matches. And he gets a tryout match where he gets a win over the Brooklyn Brawler and then loses to Owen Hart and Chris Candido. But he shows the decision makers in the company enough uh, to get an opportunity to go train in the USWA. So he's got a spot here now in the USWA. And we'll break down that run in a minute. But at the time, who would have been in those decision-making spots? Is this JR? Is Pat Patterson lined it up, puts a word in with JR? JR lines it up, reviews the tape. Is Vince involved in that? Did you see any of the tape? What's the Actually, it was me, and it was it was as a favor to Pat. Uh, the, the whole tryout, everything, uh, Pat kept telling me about Dewey. Dewey Johnson. You got to see Dewey Johnson. Um, that's what they called Dwayne. And Pat asked me, he said, could you just give him a tryout? Could you guys, you know, you, you always bring it out of page. You always bring people to TV, bring them to TV and give them a tryout. So brought him out. And I believe that his first, uh, his first match for us, his first tryout was at the summit in Houston, but we brought him out. Uh, he looked, uh, he was greener in grass, but he had a presence in the ring right. and he looked good. He looked like an athlete. So we were starting the developmental and thought, well, let's, let's bring him up and put him in developmental and see how he does. Yeah. There's a phrase in the business called it, you know, either guys have it or they don't have it even in those early tryout matches. And obviously, as you said, he's green as a gourd. Did you, did you think he had it? He had it walking in the building. So he had a presence about him, but maybe he just hadn't put it all together yet. Right. And, but he, he walked in, he was, he was cocky. He was confident and he walked in like he was somebody. So you, you all of a sudden, you know, he made heads turn because he's a big, good looking bastard. And you're thinking, Oh my God, who is this guy? So he just, he needed to be, um, I always would tell my brother, Hey man, you trained the rock. And he would always say to me, he goes, no, rock didn't need to be trained. He just needed to be told what to do with what he had so he had it so when he takes it to the uswa he's repackaged as or i guess just packaged since this is debut really flex kavana um i don't know what to say here flex fucking kavana well that was something i think lawler and and rock came up with it was yeah flex kavana and he and you know why why so he could sell pictures a good looking baby face that had a great body and so make him a baby face and give him this crazy name. And he liked it because it sounded exotic and you can sell gimmicks. When he's here in the USWA, he wins the tag titles a couple of times and he has some matches with Jerry Lawler. Were you guys keeping tabs on his progress at USWA? Who's reviewing tape at that time? Or are you just waiting on somebody to call and say, Hey, it's time. No, we were the ones that sent him to, to Memphis to go down there and work. So it was during a time that we were working with Memphis and I got the Memphis tapes every single week. So we were keeping tabs on him and watching him every week. There were a few guys that were, were down there. I don't remember if Kurt was there yet or not, but it was all during that same time frame. So the word is he gets a call sometime in the summer, I guess of 1996. Um, and he signs a WWF contract. And he goes to the warehouse, uh, which I guess you guys were calling tracks at the time. Is that right? Where he trained with, uh, no, 
No, tracks didn't come until much later with, uh, that was a tough enough thing that they called tracks, which was cross the tracks from the TV studio. This time it was in the warehouse of the TV studio and it was a ring in the middle of the warehouse. And that's all it was. And Tom trained guys, including Mark Henry and Brackus, right? Correct. What did your brother Tom think at the time when he first got a rookie rock were his strengths and weaknesses? Well, considering what he had up until that point of Mark Henry and Brockus, his initial thought was, thank God. <laughs> he had somebody that knew how to take bumps. He had somebody that understood what the wrestling business was because Rock grew up in it. And someone that really wanted to be a wrestler and had a strong desire to be a wrestler. So he was happy to have Rock in there because it was someone that you could actually see a future for. So a guy like The Rock, who's in your developmental territory, when he signs the real contract to come up and he's going to start training in the warehouse, would he have had a meeting with Vince McMahon by this point, or would it be once he was shooting vignettes and such before that happened? No, and I don't even think we shot vignettes with him, per se. I, I really don't even remember. Uh, I remember the whole thing about bringing him in and his debut in Madison Square Garden and the whole name thing. But... You know, he met Vince, obviously, when he came up for TV, and he, he had known Vince since he was a kid. So it was just kind of a reacquainting uh, period. But it was something that Vince always kind of kept an eye on the guys in the warehouse. In Vince's head, you know, he's looking at his star in the warehouse is Mark Henry. Right. World's strongest man. Sure. And and Rock is just a third generation. Yeah, he's, he's Rocky's kid. Um. Which at the time could be great or it could be awful. I mean, there's almost no in between. It's either you, you use this as an opportunity to become a superstar or you're Eric Watts. Right. Nobody knew. Right. So it was, you know, we're going to have to wait and see, but he was definitely progressing a whole hell of a lot faster than anybody else in there. And he had, as you say, he had it. When do you think the decision was made and how does the decision become, okay, he's ready. So he's in the warehouse sometime in the summer of 96. By October of 96, you guys are airing vignettes. I know you might not remember them, but you've got Kevin Kelly talking with Rocky outside. He's showing highlights of him doing some things on the ring and, and lifting weights. It, it's not like a, a real uh, a package treatment that you may have done with a Million Dollar Man character or Mr. Perfect character, but you're still building some anticipation and introducing him to the audience. So in between that summer and October, I mean, that seems like a pretty quick progression. Who makes the call? Is that something your brother says, guys, he's ready? No, that was something that we did. And, and Jim Cornette actually had a lot to do with it. I remember Cornette looking at him, God damn, he's third generation. Motherfucker looks like a Greek God walking around in there. We've got to be able to do something with him. He's a baby face. He can be the champion. And, you know, Vince was a little hesitant, believe it or not, at first. And we got into the argument as to because everybody called him Dewey. Right. And and, and, and Rock hates that name. It's well, like, my name is Dwayne. And so the more he would say that my name's Dwayne, the more that Pat would call him Dewey. And but but that's how we, we kind of knew him. And then. Cornette was Cornette was a big proponent of, of bringing Rock in and starting him. Some Young, of, new. Some of the um, the creative 
the the drawings are out there. You know, we've all heard about this where the creative services department, I suppose, would do sketches of what they thought this character might look might look like. And some of those are floating around. Um, who would have helped put that together with the, uh, I don't know. How would you describe the, the ring entrance outfit he wore to the ring as Rocky Mavia? Polynesian. Um, I think I kind of summed it up and that was, they, I remember, oh, and it's flowing and they had stuff, you know, hanging from his neck and everything. And uh, when he moves and it's all flowing and it's like streamers hanging from his body. But the whole, the whole look was to capitalize on, on the Polynesian feel. And when we kind of, you know, we're going back and forth, what the hell do we name him? And it came up to, you know, the, the whole Rocky Maivia. You take the first name of his father and the last name of his grandfather, put them together. And it tells you about his legacy right there in his name. And uh, is that something creative would have put together? Or who, who combines the names? The name was something that we came up with in Vince's dining room. So when you explain all of this and show the, the sketches uh, to Dwayne, who's involved in that? Who's kind of laying it out to him and saying, okay, kid, here's what we got for you. I want to say that was probably Vince and I that did that. With him, you know, when we, when we laid everything out, asked him, cause we asked for his input too. You know, what are you comfortable with? What do you like? And at that time, he was just happy to have a job. Right. He was happy to be a part of it. So chat me up about the way this is laid out, because I think a lot of us have heard that Vince has, uh, a tendency to try to really go into sell mode whenever he's trying to explain the gimmick to a performer for the first time. What might it have sounded like as he kind of, expressed what his vision of Rocky Maivia was going to be to Dwayne. How damn you have to embody everything about your father, the strength of Rocky, and you have to be able to embrace the heritage of your grandfather, Peter High Chief, Peter Maivia. And it is all embodied in you with the Polynesian flow. But when you get in the ring, we want to see that shuffle like your old man used to do. <laughs> God damn, pal. Um, you know, it, it was, it was a tough sell, believe it or not. Really? Because Dwayne wanted to be his own man. He, he didn't want to, he didn't want to ride the coaches. Uh, hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. <laughs> when you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Yeah, he didn't want to ride the coattails. Yeah, I guess is the right. He wanted to be his own man. He didn't want to be Rocky Jr. He didn't want to be High Chief Peter Maivia's grandson. He's very proud of his heritage, extremely proud of his heritage. But he wanted to make his own way, and he he just thought that 
well, is, is this capitalizing on that too much? And we thought it, we obviously thought it was perfect for him. Um, do you know how, um, Rocky felt about it? I don't, I, at the time I don't. And they were, you know, they've, they've had a kind of off again. and on relationship for many years. I don't know that it was necessarily on at that time, which might've, you know, helped with rock, not really wanting to take his dad's name, but it was, yeah, it was strange over the years. You know, sometimes they were on, sometimes they were off, but it, it was over the years. I know that, uh, Rocky was extremely proud, you know, that, that the rock, you know, became who he is. I believe, um, you know, although he, he may have, you know, had his ups and downs with his dad, he's always been very close with his mother. Wouldn't you agree? Oh God. Yes. Yeah. yeah he's without a doubt. His mother and his grandmother. So, you know, you guys have him make his debut uh, in the ring at Survivor Series 1996, and uh, it's kind of an interesting place to debut because that's such a, a critical show in the history of the company. You've got um, Mankind taking on uh, the Undertaker, and the Undertaker kind of floats down from the ceiling almost in like a bat-like costume. And then you've got Bret Hart making his in-ring return after a long absence from the company, and he's taking on Stone Cold Steve Austin, and this is Stone Cold's First high-profile match like this, a phenomenal match, very underrated. And then the crowd is just on fire for Sid versus Shawn Michaels. They do the title switch. So there's a lot going on. The NWO is really caught on, and the WWF is trying to play catch-up. And in the middle here, it's kind of a hodgepodge match. Let's run through. This is an interesting thing here. The Rocks team for Survivor Series is Jake the Snake Roberts, who is a little bit of a surprise, Wild Man Mark Miro, and the stalker Barry Windham. And they're taking yeah. on Jerry the King Lawler, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Gold Dust, and Crush. What an interesting, first of all, the amount of talent on those teams is unbelievable. But what an interesting match, especially kind of in the middle of the card, right? Yeah, it was one of the Survivor Series. That's when Vince was trying to get away from those Survivor Series tag team matches. So he was like, we'll have one traditional tag team match and one or two, whatever. But it was a way to introduce him. Lawler was in there because he had worked with Lawler in uh, Memphis. We knew we could trust him. Triple H was in there because Triple H was a proven good worker. So you, you had people in there that would make him shine and, and make him look good. And then on, on the other side... I'll tell you another one that was big on the rock and uh, Rocky Maivia at the time, who was a, a big supporter was Jake and Jake was working with us in the office and in creative at that time too. And he was sold on him. Oh God. Yes. Yeah. Jake, Jake had, uh, Jake had high hopes for Rocky and, um, they actually lived in the same apartment building there in Stanford. And, um, Jake had a lot of early influence on, on the rock. Um, of course, this goes down, as we said, Survivor Series 96. That's November 17th, so it's hard to believe, but it's almost 21 years ago. And this debut actually makes The Rock, or I guess Rocky at the time, the first third-generation wrestler in WWF history. And that's uh, that's something you guys played off of in a big way. Obviously, from the name on down, you know, the combination of the uh, Polynesian entrance and then 
you know, the shuffle. Uh, the finish is kind of a shoulder breaker type maneuver. How does that come to be? Do you recall? I believe that, uh, actually, I believe that that was Jake's idea, something that would be safe and something that he could do with everybody. Right. So that was the, uh, that was the reasoning behind it. And, you know, it was, what do we, you know, what do we do for a finish? And that was Jake's idea. It's the traditional Survivor Series elimination match as we laid out. So, of course, it comes down to Rocky in a two-on-one situation taking on both Crush and Goldust. And somehow, our new third-generation babyface, the blue chipper, as JR called him several times that night, uh, pins both guys. He pins Crush after a flying body press, and then Goldust takes the shoulder breaker for the win. And Rocky is the sole survivor. Uh, and I do find it kind of interesting, considering what we're about to break down and what most of you have heard for a long time, that The Rock's debut match in front of a major WWE audience, Triple H is on the other side of the ring. How funny is that? Well, yeah, and, you know, it's, God, you, you bring up the blue chipper and all that stuff and the, and the vignettes and the, the hype and everything around it. It was Madison Square Garden, Survivor Series. You know, that what a great just card that was sure. overall. And they just shit all over him. I mean, that, that crowd just shit all over him. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that. At the time, Sean is playing the white meat baby face, and he's got Jose Lothario as his second, and he's his trainer, of course, and he's the baby face champion. But Sid gets a hero's welcome, and every heelish thing that Sid does, uh, including hitting Jose with a camera, the crowd is just popping for like crazy. They love Stone Cold. They love all the, they're just, they love in the bad guys here. And The Rock is Mr. White Meat Babyface right here, right? Oh God, coming out and doing the, doing the old, you know, yeah, it's me. It's Rocky. Yay. Cheer me, please. Oh my God. Look at me. My teeth are perfect. And I've got a chia pet on my head. Love me, please. And that New York crowd just said, fuck you. What was the reaction backstage? Because obviously you guys are pushing him in a big way. I think somewhere, even when he's coming to the ring, as JR's calling him a blue chipper and all this, he says something like, that's going to be the man right there. And I mean, it's hard to argue that he was, that he was wrong, but at the time, it certainly didn't feel like it. So is Vince on headset in the back? Are you sitting next to him? Are you guys looking at each other like, what the fuck? This was a misfire. Well, I do remember sitting there thinking, wow, the New York crowd is brutal. And. That's what, you know, you, you start making excuses is what you do and you start rationalizing why they're booing him and you think, God damn, we get to middle America. They're going to love him. And <laughs> <laughs> you just, you know, it's like, Hey, San Francisco is going to pop when he's out there. My God. Um, it just, I, I think that they were sick of being, uh, having guys shoved down their throat. The audience was sick of us telling them how to how to feel. And that was something that, that we were conditioned to do. You're going to love this guy. Cheer him, damn it. Look at him. But see, here's what's interesting to me, and we're going to talk about it on this show, but one of the reasons I was excited to talk about this is because of the way The Rock debuts and the way the company is really trying to push him as, that's going to be the man. And the, and the fans just ain't buying it, and they feel like he's being pushed down our throats. A lot of people would argue there's some eerie similarities to that right now with Roman Reigns in the WWE. 
And, and there are. And I think that, that that is probably what, what hurts Roman to a point. If you let the audience, if you let the audience choose them and then it, it happens organically, or at least they think it happens organically, then it just usually works so much better. And we can oversell and overhype to the point that no matter what you do, they can walk on water and the crowd's going to throw them up. So I, I think that we had just maybe crossed that line <laughs> a little bit with Rock with his initial appearance, and it wasn't his fault. It, it was more, it was more our fault for the way that we pushed him into a spot that we should have just let happen. Well, I guess what I find interesting about this is you feel like. Vince would have learned from this situation and been able to call an audible, but it doesn't seem like he's really doing that with Roman as of yet. Well, no, and but you also have to understand that there are also times when Vince will look at it, and John Cena is a perfect example. When we really wanted to turn John Cena heel, and Vince made the declaration he will not be a heel. Uh, John Cena is going to remain a babyface, and they're going to love him. And eventually they did, and they fell in love with him. Um, Vince is just stubborn. Right. And he felt the same way here that, you know what? They're going to love this son of a bitch. Whether they like it or not, they're going to love him. So Vince was making that excuse here this night as well, Survivor Series 96. I, yeah, I, you know, we, we pretty much blamed it on the New York crowd and, oh, they're brutal. and and um, But at the same time, you know, we would always look at that New York crowd. What was getting over in New York was going to get over everywhere else. One of the and things, they were usually ahead of the curve. Uh, one of the things that I, I noticed when I watched this back is after The Rock wins, he's celebrating, but he has his back to the hard camera the whole time. That's something that he's just, nobody's smartened him up about. I mean, does nobody walk him through that, or does he just kind of forget because he's overwhelmed by everything that's happening here on the same night? Well, again, at that time, um, you take a lot of things for granted, especially you, you forget with somebody new. You You kind of assume. Sure that guys know and you get out there and sometimes they just slip through the cracks. Do you remember uh, after that match, what the feedback amongst the office or the boys or the rock himself would have been? Did the rock feel like, you know, it went well, were any of the boys, we've heard kind of in the past that X-Pac was kind of the measuring stick once upon a time. And so afterwards he would give a report, Hey, that guy's got it. That guy doesn't have it. Do you remember any sort of, uh, feedback at all from the performers in the match or the agents or anything like that? Everybody thought he had it. Everybody thought that Rock definitely had it and that he was going to be a huge star. We just had the thing that we had to fine-tune was we had to fine-tune the presentation and the personality. Who the hell is he going to be? And to be this smiling, syrupy, traditional um, baby face that kisses babies and, and hugs old ladies in – at that time, that wasn't what was getting over. They're cheering Steve Austin, talking about, I'm going to come out and kick your ass, and hey, Brett. Um, th- things were changing. Like you said, man, they're, they're cheering Sid hit an old man with a camera. Right. The traditional babyface model wasn't what the audience wanted anymore. Let's get going here. Uh, November and December, he's working with Salvatore, uh, Sal Sincere, and he gets a lot of wins over Sal, including In Your House, It's Time. It was a dark match. It may have been on the free-for-all, uh, but he got a win by DQ. Uh, his first real opponent, 
uh, was January 13th. And on Raw, he would defeat the British Bulldog by countout. Uh, later that week, he's at the Royal Rumble in 1997. Uh, he comes down at number 25 and has no eliminations, but he was eliminated by Mankind, which is kind of interesting considering what we're going to be talking about a little later. But things really pick up for Rocky Maivia on Tuesday Raw. It's February 10th, 1997, and believe it or not, Rocky Maivia defeats the Intercontinental Champion Hunter Hearst Helmsley, and in the process becomes the youngest IC champ in WWF history. Uh, why was the decision made to put the Intercontinental title on him so quickly? Just debuting in November, and now here in February, he's already the Intercontinental Champion. Uh, that's that's a pretty fast turn for a new guy to the company. Youth and pedigree. Uh, he was going to be the youngest champion, and we felt that he had a little bit of momentum and thought that, well, you know what? Maybe... Putting a championship on him may help them accept him even more when they see that, you know, by God, he's the intercontinental champion. It just would, you know, t- maybe help take him to that next level. And that was the idea behind it. Just be able to nudge him along, keep nudging him along. You, you're going to like this guy. By God, he's a champion. That was the idea. It's um, a little interesting, I suppose, uh, that this happens with triple h here i should read from brett's book here and shout out to the wrestling observer uh, message board brian 08 over there is hooking me up with this this is from Bret hart's book he wrote on february 7th i was sitting with davy in the dressing room in pittsburgh listening to sean bitch about steve i was slightly relieved to know that i wasn't the only one he feared poor rocky Maivia was also being buried by sean and hunter for supposedly not wanting the job for not selling and for stealing their spots Rocky was a good kid. He tried to be polite and respectful, but he couldn't get them to like him at all. So this is just a couple of days before he wins the Intercontinental title from Hunter uh, on Tuesday Raw. Do you recall any sort of politicking going on with Sean and Hunter not to put over the new kid or to have the belt come off Hunter? Not particularly in that instance. I remember, and, and I've said this before, I said this to Steve Austin on, on his podcast, that the one way to tell if somebody was going to be a big star or if they were getting over is if the top guys start bitching about them. When the top guys start saying, oh, hey, that guy's not going to get over, or, God damn, you know, raise a little eyebrow, have a couple catchphrases, you know, that, that ain't, that don't mean you're over. Or, you know, well, what the fuck? He's got a couple moves, but beyond that, um, when, when the top guys start making comments like that, you start to, that's when you open your eyes and go, Hey, they're noticing they're nervous. So those are the guys that you really want to keep your eye on. And that was always a, uh, that was always a tell for me when the top guys started talking about them and telling me why they're not going to get over. That usually meant they were getting over. Uh, let's talk about uh, what he does from here. Um, believe it or not, not too terribly long after this, I guess it's actually that Sunday. Uh, they're in a rematch. It's in your house 13, Final Four. This one's in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Rocky would defeat Hunter Hurst to retain the Intercontinental title. Um, and that is actually where we see the debut, I believe, of China. Um Raw, February 17th, Rocky would defeat Leaf Cassidy, which we know is Al Snow. And then on March 3rd, he beat Vader by DQ to retain the Intercontinental title. 
And this takes us to Rocky's first WrestleMania, WrestleMania 13, which we've covered in long form in the archives. It went down March 23rd, and he would defeat the Sultan, who would later become Rikishi. And the Sultan had both Bob Backlund and the Iron Sheik there when he retained the Intercontinental title. Um, and believe it or not, this is kind of interesting. Tony Atlas was shown in the front row. Tony Atlas is the former partner of Rocky Johnson. And after the match, Rocky's dad, Rocky Johnson, comes in the ring and fights off both the Sheik and Backlund. But Atlas wasn't involved. Um, what are your memories of this first WrestleMania moment for Rocky? And why was Tony Atlas in the front row with Lou Albano if he wasn't going to be used here? Just to be able to get legends on the show, and it was a good time to be able to show because of the relationship with Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson. They were tag team champions in the WWF and you show Tony and he's here supporting the rock, but it was Rocky, his father. Uh, that was his spot at the end there to get in the ring and stand side by side by his son. It, it was just timing. You, you do things that make sense. And, and Rocky Johnson having a tie, I mean, uh, Tony Atlas having a tie to Rocky Johnson in the rock was a nice time to show him out in the crowd. But then uh, the moment, though, was for father and son at the end to clear the ring. I remember, damn, God, I, I just looked at Pat and I said, he couldn't have worn a suit for this, uh, meaning Rocky <laughs> Johnson. It's like, you know, come on. I just remember his underwear hanging out of his pants, and it just was. But it was. It was a nice, feel-good, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy moment. Uh, how did um, Rocky feel about having his dad involved? Whose idea was that? Was everybody for it? You kind of mentioned maybe they were on again, off again. Clearly, they're back on. Well, it was. I, I don't remember. He had. He didn't really have a choice. It was something that we had come up with and thought it would be a nice moment for him. And uh, it was a WrestleMania moment where we would always bring back the legends and we would bring back Hall of Famers. And it was a nice way to kind of spotlight them and. Um, we pitched it. He didn't have a problem with it and you know, we did it, but it was our idea to go out and do it because we knew that Rocky was going to be there and planned on coming out. Thought, okay, you know, this, this makes sense. And let's have him come out and do a little thing at the end with Backlund and Sheik and let Rocky come out and help clear the ring. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, what he's doing from here. Um, March 24th, he would defeat Leaf Cassidy. And then on March 31st, he defeated Bret Hart by DQ to retain the title. Uh, and this is another thing that Bret wrote about in his book. He wrote, that night had one more wrinkle. I was slated by the booking committee to challenge Rocky Mavia for the Intercontinental title, and Hunter was insisting I beat him. I didn't see any need for me to beat Rocky. It wouldn't build heat for my new heel turn and would only undermine a real talent. I insisted on a DQ instead, which infuriated Hunter. He and Sean disliked Rocky intensely, and they were myopic to see that Rocky was destined to become one of the all-time greatest megastars in the history of the business, The Rock. Looking back, I'm glad I got to work with him at least once. Do you recall, I mean, again, it feels like we're, we just talked about this from the prior month. Hunter is just dead set on trying to derail The Rock, or was this a way to get the belt onto Brett, kind of the, the second tier belt onto Brett and out of the world title picture for Sean. No, not at all. It, it was, we were, we were moving towards kind of the attitude 
with Brett and no, had no desire to put the uh, Intercontinental Championship back on Brett. I'm not saying you did. I'm asking why is Hunter pushing for that? No, I, more than anything, I just think it was a jealousy and a professional rivalry with Rock. Anytime that, again, that's what I said, anytime that somebody was coming up, the guys are always jockeying for positions. And I think that all of that was just professional rivalry and looking at it going, okay, well, you know, hey, this guy's coming up. Why, well, you know, Brett's, Brett's over here. He shouldn't beat him. And so much of that, you have to understand, it's because a guy says that in a locker room around the other guys, that's, I'll quote our president. That's locker room talk, and it's guys stirring other guys up. It's ribbing on the square. But there is a lot of professional rivalry there where guys look at other guys. You see somebody coming up, and you're going to be fighting for your position. So it may have been tongue-in-cheek, but it may have been political jockeying for position. Well, I mean, it's it's jockeying for position in their mind. Yeah, go and look. I hope everybody hears it. But you also do that in the locker room to get other guys talking and going, oh, boy. As a reminder, that's the night where Brett got Owen and Bulldog back together, and they kind of reformed the Hart Foundation. Uh, so this is very early in the heel run, just on the heels of um, WrestleMania 13. Uh, I should mention here, I don't know if I, if I don't say it right here, when we'll get it. Brett wrote in his book something like, The Rock first developed hard feelings towards Shawn Michaels at a show for Polynesian Pacific Pro Wrestling, where The Rock's grandmother had been working as the event coordinator. While details are sketchy, the story goes that Shawn Michaels was blatantly disrespectful to The Rock's grandmother, almost leading to a physical altercation with The Rock. So this would have been before The Rock was ever in wrestling, uh, because that all kind of got shut down in 88. So we're nine years prior to that here. Do you remember hearing about some sort of incident between Shawn Michaels and The Rock? Was that ever discussed? No, not to my knowledge. Okay. Um, let's talk about, I mean, do you want to say anything about this Rocky Triple H, Sean, political stuff else, or do you want me to move on? No, I mean, it's that's just what it is. It's professional jockeying, and it's guys, a professional rivalry. When you see somebody coming up and you're going, oh, hell, man, is my spot being challenged? You're looking at keeping your position, and you're going to fight for it. To me? That's healthy. If you're not worried about your position and you're not fighting for it, then why the hell are you in the business? There's a legend out there that Vince McMahon actually likes for the guys to stir it up. And that's one of the reasons the click had Vince's ear because according to the rumor and innuendo, Waltman and Hall and Nash and Sean and Hunter and all these guys really enjoyed just stirring it up. And I'm curious as to your I mean, the way you remember Vince reacting to that was Vince for that and thought it was good for the business and created healthy competition and, uh, created an interesting locker room, some sort of competitive edge, or did he have a problem with it? Or do you remember there being a time when he had a problem with it and tried to put his foot down? Well, first of all, if, if there's not, if there isn't that going on, then there's probably something wrong. If guys aren't ribbing each other and guys aren't jockeying for position, then you don't have any competition. And to me, that's healthy. To me, it's healthy when guys are challenging each other for uh, position. When I play football, every Tuesday, you used to bring out the boards and you could challenge anybody on the team for their position. You'd line up the first string and anybody on the team could foul- challenge anybody else on the first string. I think that's healthy. And for guys, they're going to uh, be on the road. They're going to be ribbing on the square. They're going to be talking about guys. 
That's life. That just happens. How Vince reacts to it, that's how Vince reacts to it. But to me, that's healthy and it keeps things competitive. And as far as their dislike or them bearing the rock, uh, I believe that there was a lot of professional rivalry there. And there were times when they sat there and said, oh, hell, who the hell is this guy? Uh, so-and-so should be in that spot. That's always going to happen. It helps then when they get together, which is what happened later on, and they had one of the best rivalries in the business because there was real animosity there, and you felt it. April 14th, Savio Vega would defeat Rocky Mavi in a non-title match, and then that weekend at Revenge of the Taker, which was an in-your-house pay-per-view on April 20th, uh, Savio defeats Rocky by countout, and uh, around this time, I believe, uh, The Rock had just gotten married. And um, did he, I'm not sure, did he have a kid by this point? No. Uh, but he had just recently gotten married, and that's kind of something that a lot of people maybe aren't in the total loop on here. Uh, yeah, that's right. He married Danny Garcia, 1997. They were married for 10 years, and they still have a pretty close relationship now, and a lot of people may not be in the loop. Catch everybody up. Well, Danny Garcia was his college sweetheart, and he and Danny had gone to the university. I don't know if she went to Miami or not, but they dated uh, throughout college and got married when he finally was able to afford to get married. And uh, later on, they had a child, and they, like I said, they got divorced 10 years later, but she still continued to manage his career, manage all of his finances. She's the uh, vice president or president of uh, Seven Bucks Production, which is Rock's production company. And her brother, is uh, Hiram, is Rock's full-time manager and takes care of all their business. So they've got a great relationship. And she is um, about as smart as the day is long. One of the, She is by far the best uh, financial advisor I ever had in my life. I actually had her as a financial advisor for many years. And she worked for Merrill Lynch, and she uh extremely, extremely smart and very smart when it comes to finances. And clearly very successful. And uh, they had a daughter who now uh, has expressed a little bit of interest in the wrestling business. What would you put the likelihood of The Rock's daughter laying the smack down in the WWE one day? Well, she wanted to. I'm sure she could. I, I don't know. Yeah, hey, man, I, I don't know. That I could see Rock endorsing that, but uh, definitely don't see Danny endorsing it. But stranger things have happened. April 28th on Raw is when we would see Owen Hart defeat The Rock, or I guess Rocky Mavia, to win the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, so he wins it in February. He loses it in April. Owen and Rock were pretty good friends. Do you have any memories of their friendship or their time together or this match in particular? They were because Owen was cheap. Some would say thrifty, but uh, Rock had gone through you know some hard times when he first broke into the business. Uh, you go back to the time that, that he spent in Memphis. He used to sleep on Bruno Lauer's floor in Bruno's trailer in Walls, Mississippi, and uh, Rock you know never forgot Bruno taking him in, and he just he and Owen bonded. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody to say a bad word about Owen, but they just really got got along well and they had great matches. You know, you got a second and third generation wrestler out there and they tore it down every night. Um, let's talk about the creative decision here because it feels like Vince at this point may have lost a little bit of confidence 
I mean, Rock is getting booed during his matches. There's the die, Rocky, die sign. Uh, lots of Rocky sucks chants. The business is co- becoming a little more edgy at this point. We're definitely cruising into the Attitude Era. We've got Stone Cold flipping people off, and uh, it's going to be an interesting time in the company. And you've got the white meat baby face. Why does Vince realize now's the time to pull the plug? Of course, he debuts in November, and now, six months later, let's take the belt off of him. It feels like he may have lost a little bit of confidence. Talk us through that. No, he really didn't. It it just was. uh, It all perfect storm um you know it was ready wanted to take the title off of him and go somewhere else and then rock got hurt and he was out with knee injury and and that's the you know that was really the catalyst for the turn and the and the turn was something that that they didn't want to do um the turn was something that you know rock hurt his knee rock goes out gets surgery he's, he's out for a while and it's time he, he's ready to come back. And I remember Vince Russo coming in and saying, I don't know what to do with him. Um, you know, it, it's they, they hate him. And Vince want, Vince McMahon wanted to bring him back and just, you know, let's, let's put him back in, in the picture and he's a baby face and we'll push him. And I said, you know, they're chanting die, Rocky die right. and Rocky sucks. Bring him back as a heel, put him in the, put him in the nation. And I remember Russo going, but he's not black. Um, I said, you know, he's a black Samoan. Uh, his father's you know, African American, his mother's Samoan. So if the guy's got something, you know, to fit in the nation, he's, he's going to fit in the nation perfectly. Um, because he was, he had a legitimate gripe and he had something to be bitter about. Here I come in. I'm a third generation. I'm the only third generation wrestler in WWF history. And you people chant die, Rocky, die. You should be cheering me. You should worship the ground I walk on. You should love me. And instead you boo me and say, Rocky sucks. I'm a third, you know, and, and just fall back on his legacy and go the other way with it as to why everyone should love him and why everyone should cheer him. And the nation was a group that did just that. They talked about all the injustices that they faced every day and why they were right. Um, so we, we went back and forth. Um, they really didn't have anything for him. And I think that uh, Russo called Rocky initially and pitched him. Rocky hated it, didn't want to do it. And so... Um, I called Rock, and I, I went through the whole thing, and I was talking to Jim Ross. And Jim Ross started talking about, uh, you see Deion Sanders' promo this past week on uh, Sports Center, whatever the hell it was. And he's he's sitting there, and he's talking about himself in third person. Like, you know, Deion says that Deion's going to have a great game. And Deion says, and he says, what if Rock just started talking about himself in third person? Like, you know, The Rock says that Rocky's going to go out and he's going to beat so-and-so in 10 minutes. And um, we got Rocky on the phone. And JR pitched this this third-person thing and doing bringing him back and, and calling himself The Rock and talking about how the fans turned on him 
when they should be worshiping the ground they walked on. And that's how the whole nation and the whole turn came about. But Vince McMahon initially didn't want to have Rocky be a heel. Um, so let's talk about what he does from here in your house, May 11th, a cold day in hell, mankind would defeat Rocky. So he goes from not losing at all to now pretty close here, back to back, uh, May 19th on raw the following week, Farouk would beat him. And a week after that on May 26th, flash funk beats him. So the rock goes from being, uh, you know, the, the worker's belt, a really prime spot, maybe not a tippy top guy, but on his way, upper mid card. And it feels like he's working his way down here. Uh, and after this, he's out for a few months with a knee injury that he'd suffered in a match with mankind. Any memories of him going down with this knee injury? Yeah, it was just unfortunate and just a horrible coincidence. You know, it just was unfortunate timing, but it was the best thing that ever happened to him, in my opinion. So he returns on August 11th, uh, and this is a, a raw during a match between Farouk and Chains. The ref takes a bump, and while he's down, Rocky comes into the ring and hits Chains with what would be known as the rock bottom, which allowed Farouk to get the pin. After the match, Farouk pointed for Rocky to stand next to him, and they do the fist raise while the Nation of Domination's music plays. They hug and leave together. Um, So, not the most electrifying heel turn, but it was done very matter-of-factly. Whose idea was it to turn him heel this way? It just, it made sense. And it wasn't the traditional, you know, let's, let's go do something in here and have him turn heel. It was a way to get him back. It was a surprise to see him come back. Right. He hadn't been on TV since his knee injury. So that was a surprise. And here was an opportunity to, to bring him back, get him involved in something. And it was, it was a shock factor. It definitely is because it feels like most of the time when you've had a baby face, uh, who has, um, who's kind of been floundering a little bit and maybe the crowd's turned against him. It feels like the nation would have tried to recruit him on camera, maybe either by making the save or bumping into him backstage or, you know, showing that somebody cares for him and try to recruit him. But instead he kind of pledges his loyalty, loyalty to Farouk here. So a rather unusual way to do it. Was there ever any other idea of how a heel turn might work or was the only option thus do the nation? Well, the only option for me at that time was, as I said, you know, it was my idea to do the nation. I just thought it it fit and it was a way to bring rock back and let him be himself and not have to, not have to worry about that heel turn and not have to worry about bringing him back as a baby face, trying to get him back over as a baby face, just to turn him. It's, he left with people saying, die, Rocky, die. Right. And this is kind of the third version of, of Rocky Mavia because we get the Polynesian entrance. And then as intercontinental champion, we sort of move out of that and he stops wearing the, the, the entrance garb. How's that decision made? And was rock thankful to be rid of that? I think it was just a natural progression where he just stopped wearing it. It wasn't really a conscious decision to, Hey, let's get away from that. It just was, yeah, I'm going to move on without it. So now he's back and he's, he's doing something even a little more different. He's with the nation of domination. Is the rock easy to sell on being a heel? It feels like the rock is a bit of a natural heel. Without a doubt. Just be yourself. 
So the next week on Raw, the nation comes down and they get JR to come into the ring. And before they even get into the ring, a lot of fans are already chanting, Rocky sucks, Rocky sucks. And Dirt Rock does a promo here uh, where he talks about those die, Rocky, die chants. And he calls the fans jackasses. So pretty powerful words from Rocky in his first heel promo. Um, was Rock nervous about doing this promo or did he was he already very comfortable in this role by this time? You know, I think that there was so much anticipation. There was so much pent up inside of him from going out and busting his ass in, in you know, real life, hearing die, Rocky die, and Rocky sucks. And he's busting his ass trying to please people that it was real. It was heartfelt. I'm out here busting my ass for you, and you say die, Rocky, die. Right. So it's an easy turn. And it's an easy promo to come back out and just say, you know what? You're a bunch of jackasses. You don't know what the hell you want. August 25th, uh, Farouk and Rocky defeat, or actually they take on Crush and Chains, but it ends in a no contest on Raw. And about a month later on September 22nd, we would see Ahmed Johnson get a win over Rocky. Uh, I guess I should remind you that the nation had kicked Ahmed out of the group right before Rocky joined. So... I guess it makes sense to have Ahmed beat Rocky, but in hindsight, knowing what came with their careers, maybe not so much. Uh, we've covered this one before. Bad Blood, October 5th, The Nation, which would be Rocky Malvia, Kama Mustafa, and D'Lo Brown defeated the Legion of Doom in a six-man tag team match. Uh, and then on October 6th, the very next night, the British Bulldog would defeat The Rock to retain the European title. And uh, later that month, on the 20th, Kama Mustafa and The Rock would defeat Ken Shamrock and Ahmed Johnson. This brings us to Survivor Series 1997, which we're almost at the 20-year anniversary for. Uh, Bruce, I'm sure we're going to put it on a poll, or we'll talk about it later, but hypothetically right now, just your opinion, should we cover Survivor Series 1997, the 20-year anniversary, or should we cover Wrestling with Shadows? Which one do you think would make a more interesting show? Survivor Series. Rocky teams with Farouk, D'Lo Brown, and Kama here at Survivor Series 97. They take on the Legion of Doom, Ahmed Johnson, and Ken Shamrock. And Rock would pin Hawk and Ahmed, but then submit to the ankle lock by Shamrock. And Shamrock wins the match. Given what we're going to talk about a year later, did you ever have a conversation about the screw job with Rock? I mean, Rock comes from a very famous wrestling family, long tradition in the business. I'm curious what his two cents about what happened that night at Survivor Series 97. Actually, yeah. Um, the guys just didn't understand it, and they, they didn't understand everything that, that had taken place prior to that night in Montreal. So, you know, Rock being a, a traditional from a wrestling family was unhappy about it and didn't know exactly, you know, what to do or really how to take it. He was friends with Brett and thought that there could have been other ways, not knowing the whole story behind it. So he was upset. Yeah, he was definitely upset. But he, once he heard Vince's explanation and got to talk to Vince about it, he understood. Uh, I should mention here that uh, somewhere around this time is when The Rock started to refer to himself as The Rock. And you just laid out the whole story. And we talked about this on the Vince Russo episode. But one more time for the record. Vince Russo is not the person who suggested that The Rock start referring to himself in third person. Correct? Correct. That would be Jim Ross. Um, the night after Survivor Series on Raw, Steve Austin was doing an in-ring interview with Michael Cole. Uh, and The Rock 
came out to the top of the ramp. Uh, Rock said for the first time, which he'd say a lot in the future, uh, he was the best damn Intercontinental champ there ever was. And he challenges Austin to uh, accept his challenge. So chat me up here a little bit because this feels like uh, the seeds of a great feud that we would go on to know, I guess, is the greatest trilogy in the history of WrestleMania. Austin uh, says he has a few challenges for him. Uh, I challenge you to get a decent haircut. Since you're a piece of crap, I challenge you to flush yourself down the commode. Uh, and then Rocky would later steal the Intercontinental title from Austin. And this is probably, I mean, I guess, the genesis of the greatest feud in the history of wrestling, right? Uh, without a doubt. And, 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 and here, you know, everybody says, oh, I never give Vince Russo credit for anything. I give Vince Russo credit for this. thought it was, uh, without a doubt, the uh, greatest rivalry of that time of the attitude era is what really defined the attitude era and, and helped kick it off and started a rivalry that went on for many years. And like you say, the only one to ever headline WrestleMania three times. Uh, whose idea was it to put them together here? Uh, probably, you know, either, either Russo or Vince McMahon. It was, you know, you had these two guys with great cutting edge promos and be able to put them together because rock was on rock was on his way up. And this was during a time that, you know, Steve was good. God, he was just absolutely red hot. And this was during the time that Steve, <laughs> Steve was saying, you know, you talk about guys, you know, I got, look at this because Steve said, you know, uh, I don't know if that guy's going to get over. He's got a couple cute uh, catchphrases, but then when they got together, it was magic and they just worked beautifully off of each other. Um, their first ever confrontation. I think everybody could see the chemistry here. I mean, there's no telling that you guys, but I mean, there's no chance you guys knew what the upside was going to be. Who was the biggest fan of seeing this thing continue? And, and how did rock and Austin feel about working together very, very early in here in 1997? Well, once they got together, <clears throat> both of them loved it because again, you've got two guys that are great on the microphone. And when the bell rang, they could deliver here. Rock is coming up and Steve is kind of the heir apparent at this point, you know, just the hottest thing in the business and rock is coming up, nipping at his heels. So they, they fought, you know, you, you had rock fighting for a position, trying to be the number one guy and to be able to take it from Steve Austin, who really was the number one guy at that time. So they were, we're kind of fighting for supremacy here. And that part of it is a shoot. And they just played off of each other. So damn well, neither one of them, uh, both of them are selfish in their own ways, but both of them are two of the most giving guys in the ring because they had somebody that they really loved working with and went out and tore the house down and they, they tore it down, whether they were cutting a promo on each other or whether there was physicality and their stuff was just off the chart. Um, November 17th, dude love would defeat the rock by DQ. And then on December 1st, the rock would beat Vader by countout. Degeneration X, which was an in your house on December 7th, we would see Steve Austin defeat the rock to, uh, retain the intercontinental title and then regain possession of the belt. And, uh, Austin drove a truck to ringside. Uh, that was the first time that that ever happened, uh, during a match that I recall. Uh, what are your memories of Degeneration X and this uh, December seventh pay per view here? Well, the 
Steve Austin and the uh, the whole Stone Cold Steve Austin BMF and this just Stone Cold ass kicker was taking shape. <laughs> it was something that we got into pretty much the vehicle business, I guess you could say at this point, because it was Steve right driving trucks to the ring. It was Rock coming in, uh, Lincoln Town cars and different things. But it was just that extension of the personality, extending more of the outside world inside the arena and inside the characters. And I think that when you look at the build of The Rock and you look at the build of Stone Cold Steve Austin, it's a perfect example of building two of the greatest stars in the history of our business simultaneous. And the, and they did that for each other. Um, I guess we should talk about... Uh... Austin wrestled the entire match with the vest on and he took it off after the match. Um, they only went five and a half minutes. Why was this match so short? I've oh, shit. I don't remember. There were times, you know, they would go out and it wasn't so much about the match as It was about everything around it. And trust me, there's nobody sitting there with a, with a stopwatch with the exception of some goof in California going, well, that match bell to bell was only four minutes and 19 seconds. People want the buildup. They want everything around it. They want the fight. They want the presentation. When we looked at presenting matches and we looked at presenting things in front of the people, from the time the first guy walks out of the curtain until the time that the last guy comes back through the curtain, that's what we consider time. And as long as they're entertaining from the time they walk out to the time they walk back, that's all we care about. So there wasn't a, oh, this, maybe the bell to bell was five minutes, but everything around it was probably a lot longer. The next thing on Raw, I guess, is maybe one of the first times we see this Mr. McMahon character, uh, at least on TV. Uh, Vince starts off talking about all the things that Austin had done recently, including the previous line at the pay-per-view, how he beat up a ref. Uh, the fans start chanting Austin. Uh, and then Vince says something like, may I have your attention? <laughs> and Vince is demanding that Austin defend the Intercontinental title against The Rock. So, of course, Austin comes down, and he tells Vince, I don't care who you are. And Vince says, I'll tell you who I am. I'm the proud owner of the World Wrestling Federation. And furthermore, Mr. Austin, I'm your boss. Of course, Austin says he doesn't give a damn. Uh, and Vince says something like, if Austin doesn't defend the title, he won't like the consequences. Uh, so then Austin does what he does. If anyone wants to see Vince McMahon get his ass whipped, give me a hell yeah. And uh, Vince then says, I've been meaning to talk to you about your language. So Austin starts cussing more. And uh, let's remember that Austin stunned Vince a few months prior to this, I guess in September, Madison Square Garden. And this is really their first verbal confrontation since. But you guys have to know when you see this, that this has gold. I mean, this is really the first time that we saw it live in a ring and how the crowd responded to it. Was it just instant? Everybody knew, oh, shit, this is it. Yeah, <laughs> um, because it was so you can lay it out all you want and you can anticipate a crowd reaction and you can sit there and go, OK, when you when you say this, you say this and you do that, you do. I'll do this. But to actually get out there and feel it and to spontaneously react off of one another and it's magical and the audience reacts the way that you anticipated, you got magic, you got gold, and that's what they did. Later in the show, when this match is going down, uh, Vince is ringside. Austin comes out dressed in street clothes, carrying the belt, 
And he tells Vince that he's not going to wrestle because he whipped The Rock's ass the night before. So then Vince says he's going to strip him of the title and just give it to The Rock. Uh, and Austin says if he does that, he's going to knock Vince's teeth out. Um, Austin then declares he's been the Intercontinental Champion and the Tag Team Champion, but the only belt he's interested in is the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Uh, and he then tells The Rock he's going to forfeit the title to him, and he just hands him the belt. They shake hands, and Austin stuns him. So, of course, Austin leaves with the belt and tells Vince that he has plans for the belt uh, next week. Uh, was this whole forfeit the title situation uh, done so it didn't make Austin look weak by losing it because you guys knew you were going to push him to the moon? Or what was the decision here, just handing it to The Rock? Gaga. Yeah, <laughs> you know, pretty much just Gaga. This was, you know, this was during the time of Vince Russo in the creative, and a lot of things were done just to create television, to to take up time on TV, and to create different stories without having to have a lot of matches. So that's why a lot of these storylines went that way. Some of it didn't make sense, but it was entertaining television that got you to the same point of, of a match without just having matches to, to get you there. The next week on Raw, Austin threw the Intercontinental title uh, off a bridge. <laughs> it looked uh, very similar to the bridge that Rock would throw an Austin dummy off of years later. Uh, this is one of the more famous things. You guys were throwing stuff off bridges. Uh, once upon a time, the Rock's throwing a belt, and then he's throwing a dummy, and Austin's throwing a belt. Tell us about these bridge gimmicks that you guys were doing that were so popular amongst the office at the time. Where's it at? How'd you guys find it? Whose idea was it? What can you tell us about this bridge? Well, I want to say that the bridge idea was something that Corny came up with that he saw somewhere in, in Memphis many years ago where somebody threw some belts off of the bridge. And if you want it, you can go and get it. We recreated that here. And it just was a very Austin-esque thing to do. It takes you out of the arena and takes you to a different location. And it was, yeah, it was, it was different. It was attitudinal, attitudinal, if that's actually a word that gave Austin more personality. And again, you don't have to have a match and it gets you where you want to get and gives Austin all that much more personality. But I, I believe it was just something that Cornette had seen in Memphis at some point. We're re recreating it now at this point. Yeah, um, it's kind of a big deal here. Now, tell us, there's rumor and innuendo about what this belt was, because it wasn't the Intercontinental title, I don't think. I think someone has said this was actually a tag belt, and you maybe told us once upon a time that somebody tried to return this to the company. What's the scoop on that? I believe it was an old broken, it may have been an old broken tag team championship, but the belt, it was broken, and it was something that we didn't, you know, we didn't repair them then, and it was something that we had and sitting in JJ's office, old office there. And so, Hey, yeah, use this. It's a prop. Um, throw the belt out, but no, somebody found it. Somebody actually went and found the damn belt and asked us, I believe they tried to sell it back to us. <laughs> it was like, you know what? You got a hell of a souvenir there, kid. <laughs> what did they ask for? Do you remember how much they were? I don't, I don't. It was just so ridiculous. It was to us, it was just so ridiculous that someone had actually gone to this bridge and gone in this river or whatever the hell it was. It wasn't like a big raging river or anything like that. The damn thing probably sunk in about three feet of water 
and they went and got the belt, found it. <laughs> and so, you know, if somebody's going to go through all of that to get a belt that we throw off of a bridge, more power to them. I know people are going to ask us here, Bruce, where did you shoot this at? What bridge is this? I have no idea. If you know what bridge it is, uh, please tweet us. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. We'd love to know. Uh, or post it on our Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Uh, December 22nd, The Undertaker would defeat The Rock by the Hue on Raw. On into January, on the 12th, we would see Mark Henry and Ken Shamrock take on The Rock and D'Lo Brown. But it ends in a no contest when Henry turns on Shamrock and joins the nation. Uh, around the same time, The Rock started to refer to himself as the people's champion. Uh, and he would use the people's elbow, although he wasn't calling it that for a while still. Uh, where does the people's champion come from, and where does the silly people's elbow come from? Well, the people's champion was something that Rock just, you know, came out and deemed himself. You know, he crowned himself the people's champion. The people were the ones that were chanting, die, Rocky, die, and Rocky sucks, and he actually became their champion. So he became the people's champion. The people's elbow was something that that was done and it was created on the road at some point, but it was a rib. It was a joke. And I believe it was in a match with Triple H or Undertaker, one of the two, and they dared Rock to do it. And he did it, and it got a pop, and he just um, continued to do it. It was so damn ridiculous and so over the top, but by God, ridiculous and over the top is what was getting over at that time. Uh, They popped and went crazy every time he did it. There's a story out there, I think, that Hunter put out. um, I forget where, but he put it out somewhere. And the gist was um, Rock did it on a house show to try to pop the boys. And they were laughing and loved it. And he kind of uh, teased that he was going to do it at every house show. And then it started to become part of the house show routine. And eventually they talked him into trying it on TV, and it just went over huge. Is that the way you remember it? (laughs) Yeah, and I and I don't remember if he if he originally did it. It was and it was it was to pop the boys, and that's why I want to say that I think he did it with Undertaker because they kind of dared him to do it, and he did it and it got a huge pop, and then he continued to do it, and it's like, well, hell, it works. That's like the uh, I mean, I'm gonna fast forward here and go on to something else, but um, you remember when we used to do the singing stuff with Steven Rock? Yeah. Well, that was just something that Steven Rock did in house shows where Steve would go out and Steve would uh, start to sing a song and then Rock would come out, whoa, 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 whoa. And Rock would start singing a song and then they would have a song off and they would try and trip each other up with songs. And they would just do this live and it would entertain the crowd. And they tried it one time at a, at a TV taping where we're all sitting there and it's the end of the night and uh, Rock and Steve are entertaining everybody and they do the singing bit. And it was like, oh my God, they're, the crowd's eating it up. And we thought, well, shoot, if we do this on TV, you know, will they eat it up as well? And then it came, got into the rock concert and them singing back and forth. But so much of that stuff was impromptu that they did goofing on each other, trying to trip each other up and turned into great TV bits. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, I guess we should ask you here, you know, when when we're talking about the people's champion, is that something that, you know, he just sort of does on his own 
Or is it something that he has to run past somebody in the back? Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening, wherever you listen. A lot of times, rock would just go out and, well, hang on, there's two different rocks. There was rock that used to, been through, so helped rock out with a lot of his verbiage and they did work together a lot on a lot of verbiage. So I don't know if that's something that, that Russo came up with, but rock in the early days and the early incarnations of the rock was very law abiding. He, he would follow the script right? and he would like to get things approved and he would like to let people know. And, and as he got more over and he got more confident, he started trying different things. So it was a combination of both when he, he got a little more mature and he started trying stuff. Then he, he got a little riskier and he would get out there and have fun with it. Um, do you remember there being a moment where Vince McMahon was bought in and realized this is the guy? Now I'm not saying to the stone cold level because obviously he's got the hot hand at this point, but was there a point where it went from, he's just a guy on the roster and someone who's dependable and a good hand or whatever you guys called him. But at, at some point, it's like, oh, wow, this is this is a real superstar. Was there- I'll tell you, the, the turning point was when Rock was in the Nation of Domination, and they would, you know, Farouk, the Nation of Domination was something that was designed to get Ron Simmons over. Right. And for Ron to be the, the top guy out of that group. And the turning point was Ron would go out, Ron would cut the promos, and they would get down the line. And there would be a point where Rock would get the microphone. And after a little while, after three or four weeks of that, when Rock would get the microphone, the crowd just went nuts before he ever said a word. And I remember sitting there and and looking at Vince, and he says, damn, put a microphone in his hand, and the crowd goes nuts. He hadn't said a word yet. We got something here. That was the the moment that he broke away from the from the pack. Well, and that. Anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. Let's keep. Going. No, no, I, I I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying. You know, it's uh, it's funny to think that from the nation of domination would become, you know, this superstar that the Rock is, and you never know how it's going to turn out. And uh, with a little bit of patience and a little bit of time. Uh, we're on our way. We're certainly on our way uh, here at Royal Rumble. January 18th, 1998, Rocky would beat Ken Shamrock by DQ. Shamrock actually won by pinfall after a belly-to-belly suplex, uh, and the Rock used a pair of brass knuckles earlier in the show when the ref was down. Uh, so after the pin, Rock told the ref that Shamrock hit him with the knucks, uh, prompting the ref to um, reverse the decision and give this title back to the Rock. Obviously a finish here set up a rematch between the two which would take place at Wrestlemania 14. Later in that same event Rock would come in to the Royal Rumble match fourth overall and he'd make it down to the final two being eliminated by Steve Austin. Uh, He eliminated Shamrock and Farouk in the match and it's pretty big for the Rock to work a match like this and then enter so early and make it all the way to the final two 
And it also feels like a way to keep Austin Rock in the people's mind for the future. I mean, there's probably a lot of thought. I mean, at least as a, a smart mark dumbass like me, when you get down to the last two in the Royal Rumble, it feels like the company sending you a signal that, hey, these are the two top guys you need to pay attention to. Is that the same way you looked at it? It just kind of happened that way because, you know, realistically, we, we were looking at, at Steve being the guy sure. and, and moving on. But we, we had finished up. The, the reason that it ended up that way was because of the history with Rock and Steve. Right. It, it was almost looked at almost as a blow off. Oh, I see. Okay. But the, the end result was, man, we had no idea. Sure. At this point, you know, we were writing TV in the seat of our pants and, and just coming up with things, um, off, off the cuff. And, and Russo was coming up with a lot of different stuff and they were going week to week and not really knowing what the hell, you know, we were doing from, from one week to the next. So you would get those magic moments and you look back and, uh, realize holy cow i've i've got something here you you created something that was magical by the reaction um of the crowd Uh, i guess we should run through what the rock is doing after the royal rumble here january 19th he defeats ahmed johnson to retain the ic title on february 9th uh, he tags with Farouk and they beat shamrock and chains a week after that they're at no way out and shamrock ahmed johnson and the doa would defeat the nation of domination uh, on February 23rd, we would see Steve Blackman defeat The Rock in a non-title match. I got to ask, who booked this shit? Steve Blackman over The Rock? What the hell? Why are you asking me? That's Vince Russo. Um, you know what, man? Black Blackman was getting over at that time, man. Steve was a different cat. And it, it's not about winning and losing. It's how you played the game and how you cut the promo after the fact. I'm just saying... If I didn't say who booked this shit, I'd get get a thousand tweets. Why didn't you question Blackman? Anyway, March 9th, Shamrock and Blackman defeat The Rock and Farouk by DQ. And check this out. We're about a week out from WrestleMania here. March 23rd, Steve Austin pins The Rock. And this is their first singles match against each other on Raw. Certainly a peek into the future. Rock's the Intercontinental Champion here, but losing to Steve Austin, who's obviously about to win the world title. Uh, a pretty big moment, and uh, if you'd like to go check it out, I want to remind you, it's March 23rd on Raw. Do you remember this match in particular, the week before WrestleMania? I, I remember the decision of, you know, what, is it going to hurt Rock to lose to Steve? And, and <laughs> I remember Pat Patterson in particular, it doesn't hurt anybody to lose. Out of face, fuck it, you know. Um Who'd have thought? And again, you talk about the, the Survivor Series. Was it a precursor? And like I told you, it was more of a, of a blow-off. Here was an opportunity kind of blowing it off on TV with his biggest rivalry up until that point for the Intercontinental title in Rock and Steve. And it was just the beginning. Uh, this takes us to WrestleMania 14. Most famously here, Rock does a sit-down interview with Jennifer <laughs> Flowers. Uh, we've talked about her before, but do you care to uh, refresh everyone's memory about who she was and why she was there? No, 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 no. Didn't it, was this Jennifer Flowers or Rona Barrett? This is Jennifer Flowers. Jennifer Flowers was um, a mistress or a, an alleged mistress of then-President Bill Clinton from the uh, great state of Arkansas. 
And uh, she was very heavily rumored to have been involved with President Clinton. And that was during the time that he was famous for not having sex with any interns or uh, other mistresses and so on and so forth. And Jennifer Flowers was kind of making the rounds. And we got her for WrestleMania. So what better way to use the rock? You know what I'm saying? Can can I ask you a question? How old do you think Jennifer Flowers is today? How old? Yeah, how old do you think Jennifer Flowers is today? 70. I'm really shocked you guessed. It's 67. I would not have guessed that. I mean, it feels like to me, if you're the president of the United States, I mean. Clinton's like 100. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's move along here. Well, yeah, you know, she was, I, I think that the affair, though, took place during his uh, just, governor days. Right. I'm just busting balls. Chat me up. Uh, how is she to deal with? Does she have any demands? Um, what's in her rider? Is anything special in her uh, dressing room? Zilch. She was absolutely wonderful. She, uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, no, I'm not going to get my political opinions here. She was really, really nice and very easy to deal with. I think that she came with a manager kind of handler person and that was it. And that always impresses me. The less people you have in your entourage, the more I like you. And, um, Jennifer Flowers was, was really nice and she had no problem. She got it and she had fun with it. She didn't have any, like, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying this. She was receptive to whatever you wanted. Yeah, she was. Ball, you know, at the time, she's doing all the press tours here, and she's selling stuff to the tabloids and trying to write books and just really trying to monetize her story. Um, <laughs> what was the ask? Do you remember? I know you don't like to talk about money, but she's not one of the boys. Fuck it. Give us an idea. Oh, no, it wasn't much at all. These 50? God, she's like a like a five thousand dollars celebrity or something like that. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a good investment for you guys. So, hey, um, when you tell The Rock, who's going to be our next president, I'm sure, uh, when you tell The Rock that this is what he's going to be doing, what's his reaction? Is he for this? Against it? Does he understand it? Does he know who she is? Does he offer some strudel? What's the deal? Everybody knew who the hell she was, and it was an opportunity because. For that, for that position at that time, here was an opportunity by being positioned with Jennifer Flowers to be on the Entertainment Tonight's of the World and ET or ET and Entertainment Tonight are the same thing. Uh, I was wondering, <laughs> but to be on, he, he could be on Raw is War and the War Zone. All Monday, the, he could be Monday, on both of them. And what about Monday Night Raw? He could even be on Monday Night Raw. <laughs> oh shit. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, uh, <laughs> it could be on both of them, but it was an opportunity to get in the entertainment news, which that always intrigued rock as well to be just not in the wrestling world, but to kind of go beyond that. Um, did Vince have any interactions with Jennifer Flowers? Vince did not have any interactions with that guest at WrestleMania. You did your fingers wrong. You're supposed to do. Them. Oh, I'm sorry. It's like uh, you're right, yeah. and I just watched that the other day too. I watched his deposition just the other day. You know, his definition of sex is intriguing. You're you're a weird guy that you're watching that 20 years after the fact. Let's move on. Um, that same show, Rock would defeat Shamrock by DQ to retain the Intercontinental <laughs> Title. So once again, Shamrock. Wait a minute. Wins. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Conrad. I, I can't help myself. I'm sorry. 
too. So Shamrock wins again at WrestleMania 14. He makes The Rock tap out to the ankle lock, but he doesn't release the hold for some reason. So Farouk runs down to help The Rock, but he stopped, smiles while he's still in the ankle lock, and leaves. And like the Royal Rumble, the decision was reversed, and the title was returned to The Rock. Uh, and this was like the beginning of the split here with the nation. So it feels like some stop and start booking here with Ken Shamrock where the fans are ready for him to be the intercontinental champion. And I've often wondered here in 97, 98, it felt like you could have leveled up Shamrock into the main event picture. I've asked this 38 times. Here's 39. Why wasn't Shamrock moved up here? Cause we hated him. There you go. That's what I've been waiting okay. on. Time 39. We got the truth. Finally. That's it. That's it. So for those of you keeping score, I didn't realize this either until I did my research. Shamrock apparently owns the rock. He pinned him once and, uh, beat him by submission once, but either time rock kept the belt. And this is around the time we see the rock character really starting to evolve and turn into what we know him as. He starts rocking the expensive silk shirts that he calls the rocks, $500 shirt. Uh, he's got sunglasses that he's wearing to the ring for his promos. Where does some of this style come from? Is it, someone in wardrobe, someone in creative? Is it just him trying new things and, and him just doing it on his own? It's rock trying new things. And those damn shirts that he wore every night, he was uh, going out and buying all this stuff. And he would hang it up in the magic where Richie Posner was. He had his own little little box, and he would hang up all of his shirts and everything in there so that he wouldn't wear the same one twice. So now each of these shirts are costing probably three, 400 bucks. That's no exaggeration. And he would wear it and then he would put it in order in, in the box. Okay. So that he didn't wear them again and he would keep them all there and know what he wore on such and such a date and everything. Um, later on, if you watch your timeline and you go back and look at on cameras, you'll notice that Jerry, the King Lawler starts styling some nice, Silk shirts. Rock gave Lawler the shirts once he wore them. Right. And Lawler was going through going, hey, these look like king shirts. These are, you know, they were purple. They were paisley. And there was stuff that Lawler would wear, thought they looked like king shirts. And Lawler was just tickled to death because Jerry's a cheap son of a gun, too. Right. And Rock gave Lawler all these shirts. So Lawler started sporting all the Rock shirts for his king wear um, years going forward. And Rock finally started doing see stop doing the $300 shirts wearing them one time the next night on raw after wrestlemania ken shamrock and steve blackman would defeat farouk and the rock and after the match rock and farouk are arguing again uh, and the rest of the nation would attack farouk kicking him out of his own group the rock gets on the mic and says not only is he the new leader of the nation but he's the ruler of the nation uh, whose decision was it here to have farouk kicked out of the group and give this leadership role to The Rock. It's a great storyline. It was the audience's decision. Um, you know, because, like I said, it was the reaction from the audience when Rock took that microphone, and you could feel it. You could feel the energy in the crowd just shift because they wanted to hear. He was Here he is, a heel, but yet they were so entertained with him, and you could feel that energy in the audience just shift when Rock got a microphone in his hand. And you could feel... The shrinking, diminishing role of Farouk, who had been the strong leader, and 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 Ron Simmons was doing it all on his own. You know, those two guys were Ron would give him that look sometimes. And that was some of it was a shoot look, like you know, damn, 
So it just the, the audience is the one that really made that decision, and it was so easy to do. Started it at Royal Rumble when Rock eliminated the Nation guys, eliminated Farouk. You carry it on, then you get to the breakup. Not long after The Rock takes over, they drop the word domination from the group, and they just become the nation. Uh, was that a, a, a decision made by the company, or how does that come about? I don't really know. I believe, you know, that was just something that you streamline it and they become the nation because that's how we referred to them in the back. Sure. And I think it just kind of dropped uh, organically versus a clear cut decision to, to get see. rid of the domination. Uh, April 6th, we see Owen Hart defeat the rock by DQ. Uh, I don't know when we'll talk about him here in regards to the rock. So let's do it here. Do you remember there being any ribs that Owen pulled on the rock? Of course we've, we've done an Owen Hart show available in the archives but I know Owen and Rock were good buds. It feels like Owen may have had fun with a young Rock here. Uh, Owen used to do the the uh, the call to the front desk rib with the Rock. Uh, same thing that he did on on Hacksaw. He, he did it on everybody. But he would call and uh, excuse me, sir, but you need to come back to the to the front desk. You forgot to sign for your credit card and your incidentals. He's like, no, I did. I did. No, I'm sorry, sir. We don't have it. Maybe we misplaced it. And Rock would go down and the guy wouldn't know what the hell he's talking about. That's awesome. And Rock would go back to his room and he'd get another call. And say, sir, we, we need you to come down or we're going to kick you out of the room. So you either need to get down here right now or I'm going to send security down and security will remove you from your room. And he goes down. He's all pissed off. He's like, hey. Who the hell's calling me? I just was down here. You said you, you have my thing and everything. And this guy's calling me, telling me he's going to kick me out of the room. Tell that Rudy Pooh, you know, candy ass, come out here and tell me to my face. And Owen would be sitting in the lobby laughing his ass off. April 27th, there's a tag match going down. It's Ken Shamrock and Owen Hart taking on The Rock and D'Lo Brown. Uh, but before the match gets started, Owen high fives Shamrock and then gives him a low blow, attacks him and breaks his ankle in storyline. Therefore, Owen has joined the nation. Uh, we talked about this on our Owen Hart show, which is available in the archives, but how did Owen feel about joining the nation here? You know, Owen was actually cool with it. Owen thought it was fun, I guess, I guess if you will, and it was something new for him that he could kind of get behind and do something different. Um, he was actually cool with it. There wasn't a talking into or nobody had to sell him. Over the Edge goes down on May 3rd. The Rock would defeat Farouk to retain the Intercontinental title. And then the next day, Rock would team with Owen Hart to defeat Steve Blackman and Farouk. On May 11th, this is kind of fun, uh, The Rock and D'Lo Brown would take on Steve Austin and Vince McMahon. That match would end in a no contest when Vince attacked Austin. A uh, pretty big moment in that storyline. The following week, the New Age Outlaws would defeat Rock and Owen Hart to retain the tag titles. And a week after that, Rock, as the Intercontinental Champion, would take on Triple H, who at the time was the European Champion. And they go to a DQ, and this really starts the DX Nation feud officially. And in the process, it sort of turns DX face. Uh, the crowd had uh, really mostly been booing before this, uh, but they had started to turn because DX was doing sort of cool heel stuff. Uh, and here, when they're feuding with the Nation, who are clearly heels, DX sort of become the baby faces. What made sense about a DX nation feud? They were absolutely uh, opposites. So you had DX, it was anti-authority and anti-everything. And then you had nation, which was pretty much a solidified group that was all about structure. 
And to me, this, this grouping and this period is where both Triple H and more importantly, uh, Rock was great all before this, no doubt. But it was here that Rock came into his own because they would go out and Russo would, would type up scripts for everybody to, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And like I said earlier, you know, Rock was one that Rock was a professional and Rock would go out and he would pretty much stick to the script. Well, Hunter would go out and they're live and Hunter would go off script. Rock would try and bring it back, you know, to what was written and Rock would come back and he would be all pissed off and he would yell and scream at me and go, Hey, you know, I'm out there. I'm doing my job. I'm doing what's written down on the paper. And this guy's out there going into business for himself. And I would say to, to Rock, I said, yeah. And right now he's downstairs and Vince is chewing his ass out. If you can take the ass chewing, we're live. What are they going to do? If you can hang and you want to make a comeback, then make your comeback. We're live. What are they going to do? And the next time we were live and they went out to cut a promo and Triple H went off script, Rock went off script. And they went back and forth and there was genuine animosity between the two. And neither one knew what the other one was going to say. And they're going back and forth trying to one-up one another for real. And the audience felt that. And that is what made that rivalry so damn good because it was true and it was real. And they're off to a start the next week. It's June 1st. Owen Rock and D-Lo defeat Triple H, Billy Gunn, and Road Dogg in a six-man elimination match. Uh, Ultimately, Triple H would pin Rock, but then uh, he would be DQ'd. So Owen, Rock, and D-Lo wind up getting the win here. Uh, two weeks after that, The Rock would defeat Bader to retain the Intercontinental title. And a week after that, The Rock would defeat Triple H in a King of the Ring tournament match. As you may recall, in 1997, uh, Triple H won the King of the Ring, but he's back here in the tournament in 98, and The Rock gets the victory. This takes us to King of the Ring 1998 in Pittsburgh, which we're going to be covering this coming June. Uh, in the semifinals on that show, Rock would pin Dan Severin. Uh, how did how did Rock like working with Severin? Talk about Styles Clash. That's about it, is it not? Nobody liked working with Dan. Um, Dan's a great guy, but um, Dan has his own way of working, and, and Dan's a shooter and an extra tough son of a gun. But he could be a little tough to work with sometimes, and, and Rock's a worker's worker. He had his work so, cut out for him here, man, because in the finals that night, he loses to Shamrock. He makes t- Rock tap out again. Uh, so on this night, he wrestles two UFC Hall of Famers, Dan Severin and Ken Shamrock. And for the third straight pay-per-view, as the Intercontinental Champion, no less, uh, The Rock is defeated by Ken Shamrock. I guess we should cover this. Uh, I think we've talked about it before, but DX would come out and impersonate the nation. Triple H was the croc. X-Pac was Mia Zark Henry. Uh, Billy Gunn was uh, the godfather. And Road Dog was D-Lo. Pretty famous segment. Did DX practice this during the day? Was everything out there ad-libbed? Um, how did this go down? What did what happened first? Did did the nation go out with, um, or did DX go out first? Where they impersonated each other? It was DX first? DX did this this impersonation first, I believe, and it was. You know, it, it was making fun of, of the nation, and it was the guy that stole the show, in my opinion, was Road Dog doing D'Lo Brown. 
because Road Dog did the head bob and he did the he did the yeah that, that's right that's right that's right and uh, the it brother was, was bacon yeah <laughs> I smell what he's cooking but everybody I thought everybody uh, it was a great parody I thought it was absolutely hilarious uh, we've talked about it before but I guess we should mention it here uh, Jason Sensation was here doing the Owen Hart uh, impersonation. And I just recently, that's where I was going. Thank I, you. I just recently watched, uh, wrestling with shadows and beforehand, I get, I think I might be wrong, but I think before Canadian stampede, they have a clip of Jason sensation as a fan with a megaphone, like leading the crowd in the chant. And this is a year later. He's in the ring doing an impression of Owen Hart. What did Owen think of the impression? Loved it. I think it was Owen Hart that is the one that uh, it was either Owen or Carl DeMarco, but he did uh, Jason's best impression at the time was Owen Hart. He was did Owen Hart to a T. He did a good Brett. Obviously, he did all the Canadians pretty good because he was Canadian. But Jason's sensation is as far as his uh, mocking people and, and doing the impersonations was spot on. And he loved the Hart Foundation, but it was, you think about it, you know, Owen Hart, it's not like a really overt personality to do. Right. But Jason did it to a point that it was positively hilarious. So it was, that made it even that much better. But yeah, Jason was a fan that, that, uh, did these impersonations. We said, Hey, kid, <laughs> come on. How was Jason? Um, I mean, this has to be like every wrestling fan's dream, right? To not only, be acknowledged by the company, but to be invited into the back and then to be given the opportunity to perform with some of these guys in a WWE ring. It feels like, like a life moment for Jason, right? It was because Jason always wanted to be a wrestler. Jason later on, as far as I know, I think he went on to actually wrestle in independence up in uh, the Toronto area, but we used him for different things to when we needed an, an impersonation, if you will. Jason did some different stuff for us, and he's a talented kid. Uh, of course, we should mention Xbox here in blackface. Uh, not something that ages well. Uh, I know you've told us before, but Xbox got some some sort of weird permission from Mia Zark Henry here, and they even make a reference for him eating the doo-doo sandwich. This feels like the biggest rib of all. Who booked it? How was Xbox with it? How was Mark Henry with it? Did anybody raise their hand and say, uh, this is a bad idea. No, uh, Russo booked it and I thought that everybody did a, did a great job with it. I found that I thought it was hilarious. Um, it was simply a parody on the nation. They took it over the top. It wasn't something that was meant to ever be taken seriously. Sure. And they went way, way over the top with it so that you could laugh at it and different times. I'm sure we'll circle back to that conversation another time. Uh, let's talk about the Triple H version of The Rock, The Croc. It feels like The Rock may have laughed at this, but also been sort of pissed about it. What do you remember? I think he was laughing on the outside, <laughs> trying to let everybody know that he's cool with it. But I think that there were some things that were ribbing on the square, if you will, probably a little too close to home. But... <sighs> You can't have thin skin. And it was, it was a parody. Uh, that's what it was. And he got it at that. It, it actually, you know, drew some money and it got some interest in those guys. 
So they got to make a comeback. Thought it was good stuff. It was good stuff. Um, the next week we see The Rock defeat X Pac by DQ to retain the Intercontinental title. Then we're on fully loaded where The Rock and Triple H went to a draw in a best two of three falls Intercontinental title match. We've covered this in great detail on our fully loaded 98 show available in the archives. Anything else we need to throw in that maybe we previously didn't discuss here? God, I think, I think we've covered it. And the, the, again, it was, this is another one that a rivalry that you think is going to be, okay, you know, we're doing it now. We'll get, we'll get our fill of it and we'll have a blow off later and move on to the next thing. It's a rivalry that lived on. And I think still to this day, people are talking about will rock come back and will he work with triple H will triple H work again? And is that the match you're going to have at WrestleMania? I saw, you know, this week people speculating that. Yeah, it, uh, it feels like there's going to be, uh, more to talk about the July 27th edition of Raw sees triple H and X-Pac defeat the rock by count out. This was a triple threat match. Uh, August 3rd, a week later, we see Steve Austin and Undertaker defeat The Rock and Owen Hart to retain the World Tag Team titles. And a week after that, Kane and Mankind would beat the New Age Outlaws and Rock and Owen and Austin Undertaker to win the tag team titles. Sort of an odd pairing, Kane and Mankind as tag champs. Uh, August 17th, we get uh, Degeneration X taking on The Nation, but they go to a no contest in a street fight. Uh, and the week after that, we get something interesting. It's August 24th. China comes to the ring all by herself and calls out The Rock. And The Rock comes to the ring, and Rocky sucks Chancer everywhere. And then the nation comes to the ring. Uh, the Rock shows China on the Tron that DX is locked in the dressing room by a forklift, which is parked against their dressing room door. And The Rock starts dressing down China. Uh, she goes at him, but the rest of the nation restrain her. Rock goes in to kiss her, but then he stops. And he tells Mark Henry to know his damn role, pucker up, and kiss her. Suddenly, Shawn Michaels hits the ring with a chair and hits Mark Henry on the head with it. Uh, what do you remember about this angle with the forklift and a random return of Shawn Michaels here and a little bit of a tease with a China love story that we would see a lot of later? Uh, yeah, I actually watched this uh, recently, and I thought that, wow. This is another one wouldn't play well in 2017 because they were really rough on China and pulling her hair. And it just was not, uh, not PC, if you will. And trying to, you know, even watching it now, just God, it made me feel really uncomfortable going back, thinking about some of the things that we did back in those days. Uh, But again, it was a different time and you could always make the excuse. Well, this is wrestling. It's professional wrestling. So you get away with it. Well, it's also um, less than a year after this. She's the intercontinental champion. Yeah. I mean, but it, but at the same time, it's, she's still a woman and it was still, you know, uh, male and female and it was physical and it didn't just doesn't, doesn't age well, as you would say. So it, it was controversial at the time and, uh, always nice to get surprises in and have Sean come back. And, and it was, it was just a way to tell a different story. We use that damn uh, forklift in a door. That's how I got my face kicked in by Brock Lesnar. Same spot with the forklift in front of a door. But when you think of different things to do, how are you going to move a however many thousand pound forklift? So it's just a creative way to tie somebody up. 
We'll talk about the uh, Brock Lesnar destroying your face story another time. Later in the show, this same episode, Triple H would come down and interfere in a Val Venus Takamichinoku match. Beat them both up and get on the mic and tell Rock at SummerSlam, Rock's going to be his bitch. And this gets us to SummerSlam 98, which goes down on August 30th from Madison Square Garden. We talked about that at one of our New York shows uh, this past summer, and uh, I'm sure we'll cover it again sometime in the future. Uh, Triple H defeated The Rock in a ladder match that went about 26 minutes there to win the Intercontinental title, uh, and Meltzer gave the match four and a half stars. And this is the last time that The Rock would ever be the Intercontinental Champion. And you and I have talked about this before. One of the best ladder matches of all time. The crowd's super hot. Uh, they explode when Triple H grabs the title. But you've kind of told me behind the scenes, even though Triple H wins the match, The Rock's really the guy who comes out as a superstar, right? Sure. And the reason that this match was so damn good and regarded as one of the best ladder matches is because it was different. They didn't do all the flip-flop and flies and all the crazy bumps and things. They logically worked to the ladder, and they logically worked to the finish of finally getting that belt on the the hook. So out of this, yeah, without a doubt, Rock kind of came out, and it's you're looking at him going, holy shit, these people. He had the people in the palm of his hand, and we knew that he knew how to work an audience. He knew how to work that crowd. Um, but – you get a chance, go back and watch that match because it's a different type of ladder match, and that's what made it so damn good. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about moments when Vince knew. Is this match sort of the time when Vince knew that The Rock could be the top guy, that he could be the world champion? Is this the match that, you know, sort of made him in Vince's eyes, in your opinion? I don't know if it was this particular one, but it certainly let him know that he could depend on him and that he could put actually both guys, Triple H and Rock, in any position and that they would deliver. And it was kind of a coming-of-age moment for both of those guys because they were put in a position to carry it, and they did. September 5th, we would see The Rock and Mark Henry defeat the New Age Outlaws by DQ, so of course the Outlaws keep the belts. Later in that same show... We had X-Pac taking on D'Lo Brown when The Undertaker and Kane come down and attack both guys. Suddenly, The Rock hits the ring, stood in front of D'Lo, and started punching Kane and The Undertaker. They got the advantage and left him laying. Instead of helping The Rock, D'Lo ran from the ring and left him laying in there by himself. So I guess this is sort of planting the seeds of a nation breakup, right? In planting, in planting the seeds of that rock turn to the baby face. And it was what would traditionally be, you would think, okay, by them turning the back is, is it going to be a, you know, uh, the other guys turning baby face because rock was the hottest thing, but it was a way to turn, start that turn for rock to become baby face. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's next because I feel like, uh, people sort of overlook this. But it's, it's always been my opinion that a lot of times factions are put together really to create single stars. Because out of DX, uh, you know, Triple H becomes a superstar. New Age Outlaws become a really big tag team. Uh, obviously, they go on to single success as well. But here, The Rock comes in and becomes a single star when he was sort of floundering. D'Lo Brown has the European title run. Mark Henry, it does create single stars. When did you guys know... 
you know, that this nation concept had run its course and it was time to go, you know, everybody their separate ways. When, when the, when the single stars within the group become larger than the group. And then, and then it's time when the, I don't, I forget what the, the saying is, the sum of the parts become greater, but each of those guys, the individuals became larger than the group and they became more important than the group. They needed the group to initially get over and to initially be introduced and get, uh, engaged in everything. But then within that group, the individuals grew. And once they grew larger than the group, it was time to disband and move on. They do a special Saturday Night Raw on September 12th, and The Rock comes to the ring for a promo. He talks about that SummerSlam match with Triple H, uh, and then he says that Kane's not going to get away with choke slamming him. Uh, he said he was going to take his hand, raise the people's eyebrow, and lay the smackdown on his candy ass. It gets a pop, and in hindsight, I guess you could say this is exactly what you said, the beginning of his babyface turn. Uh, a couple of days later, on the regular Monday Night Raw on September 14th, The Rock pins Kane. Mankind would return to Raw for the first time since SummerSlam, and he hits Kane in the back with a sledgehammer, and then The Rock pins him. So when The Rock gets the pin, it gets a big pop, and you could see that The Rock was clearly going to be a babyface. A week after that, he's working with Mankind and Ken Shamrock. They go to a no contest in a triple threat match when Undertaker and Kane interfere. The winner of the match was supposed to get a world title match the following week on Raw, uh, and obviously uh, The Rock is getting great reactions here. Is this starting to just sort of happen organically or is this like Steve Austin's, you know, major push did the fans just really got behind him uh, or was the office sort of planting these seeds all along saying, this is our guy. Let's, let's take another stab at it. Like we did in 97. We, we were planting the seeds. We were definitely planting the seeds, but it wasn't, you know, Steve was the guy, right? Make no mistake about it. Steve was the guy, but we were thinking, okay, who, who's going to be that next guy? And Rock was a little bit younger, and he's coming up, and you're looking at that next big thing. The You listen to that audience, even as a heel, even in, in the later months with him in the nation, they were still reacting to Rock in a babyface way on those promos, man. They, they loved to hear his promos, no matter what he was talking about. So he could turn them in the ring, but we figured, why – just go with it, give it to him and let's get him to the other side. But, you know, Vince McMahon could be fickle, believe it or not. No, sometimes he, he rushes things and he does what you can do in, in two months in about two minutes. And sometimes what you can do in two weeks, he likes to do in two months. So (laughs) rock was kind of a, a a product of both of those. He, He let's do it. Then wait a minute. Buried. Breakdown is a pay-per-view on September 27th. Uh, the Rock would defeat Ken Shamrock and Mankind uh, to become the number one contender. This was a triple threat salad steel cage match. Uh, and if you're a big fan of the salad steel cage, you can pick up that shirt over at BruceBritchard.com. Right, Bruce? Hell yeah, and you can help support the Houston Relief Fund by getting our Houston Relief shirt. I'm still sending proteins, pros, proteins, sending proteins over to the Houston Food Bank because what? it helps buy proteins for folks who are still out of their homes and they're still feeding people and volunteers and everything from the Houston food bank. All that is volunteers. I used to be over pronouns, pal. It helps you remember that. I get a lot of people that are teachers that love the pronouns, pal shirt because it 
just explains a little bit more to their student. The second most recognizable athlete in the world. All of them at BrucePritchard.com. And Conrad, I'm catching up on my phone calls. I'm glad to hear it. And I'm hopeful that everybody's picking up the hashtag BTFBB because that's the only way Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake is maintaining any relevancy in 2017. And you can tweet him and tell him I sold you that. Uh, but Why you got to pick on Beefcake? You man? can pick that shirt up. It's hashtag BTFBB. I don't know why you would want to wear a Brutus the fucking Barber t-shirt, but now you can over at BrucePritchard.com. And I feel like we need a second Houston relief shirt. Maybe we could get it up in time for next week. We could call it just uh, Proceeds for Proteins. I like it. Proceeds for proteins. I like it a lot. And that is not a rib by God. Well, you know, but you can get them all over at brucepritchard.com. When you buy a shirt from brucepritchard.com, I'm going to give you a call and let you know how much I appreciate you. And thank you just for doing that. And that's a dupe, dupe, dupe. Yeah. We got lots of tweets this week as you're catching up on calls because apparently you don't know where your spam folder is on fucking AOL mail, which no, I do. I do. I do. Conrad, that's not true. I do know where it is. And I check it. And Wednesday of last week, all of a sudden I had 150 and they, they went back. You know why? Let me tell you why, because AOL just remembered last Wednesday that they're a fucking email service. Like they forgot, like AOL (laughs) is like where emails go to die and, and you had a whole bunch go to spam. So uh, we got but, but the thing is, is I get them every day in my regular email from the exact same address. Yes, I, and I understand. It's AOL. I don't think you're understanding. AOL's not a thing anymore. You're like standing around here in a fucking members-only jacket right now, wondering why everybody's making fun of you. Exactly. So let me just tell you, I got lots of people <laughs> tweeting saying, uh, I, I missed Bruce's call, and he left a voicemail. Can you tell him to call back? And on some level, I'm like, dude, that's actually better. You know, because now you've got something to show your friends. But let me let me remind you, if you buy a shirt and then a few days or in this case, most recently, several (laughs) weeks later, an unknown number pops up unless it's a bill collector. And if it is, pay your damn bills and stop buying shirts. Uh, You should answer because that unknown is brother love calling to show you some love for buying a shirt over at BrucePritchard.com. Exactly. And I do leave messages. And this was also the first time because I, I've got a new system where I can do it all. I, I don't even dial the phone anymore. It's all through the computer. It's great. And there's some people that uh, either they're if, if your voicemail is set up next. Sorry, I'm you know can't leave you a message. I'm, I can't go back and recall you and everything. These things take time. But I am happy to say thank you and uh, go over to BrucePritchard.com. Give us a visit and yeah. show your love. Guys, this whole leaving a voicemail thing, we're trying to give you some extra value. I've got one guy on Twitter who's wearing me out. I keep missing Bruce's call. He's called twice. We tell him to call again. Uh, buy another fucking shirt. What do you mean? We called. What do you mean, dude? Come on, man. Uh, pick it up. BrucePritchard.com. We really do appreciate you. Uh, and we want to give you all the extra value you want. We try to make these shows extra long. We try to, you know, be interactive with you on Twitter. We, we let you pick the poll topics and, and decide on what you want to hear. We bring the live shows to your town and we'll call you when you buy a shirt. But man, you got to answer or at least set up your voicemail. Help a brother out. September 28th, Rock, Mankind, and Ken Shamrock defeat Kane and The Undertaker. Before the match, Shamrock and Mankind start to fight each other, and then The Rock comes down to a big pop. And even JR says something like, boy, this is an ovation, a red wing-like ovation. Of course, they're in Detroit. Uh, Shamrock and Rock started fighting, and then Undertaker and Kane come out. Um, eventually, The Rock would pin The Undertaker clean in the middle with The Rock bottom. Um 
this is a, a pivotal moment to me because this is at a time when the Undertaker is not losing matches routinely. So for The Rock to get a, a clean win using his finish over The Undertaker, pretty big deal, right? You could see and you could smell what was cooking, man. Rock was red hot and he was on that trajectory going upwards and it was time. And Undertaker had absolutely no problem putting him over because it was the right thing to do. And the, the audience, that red, red, like red, red, red ring, red ring ovation, red wing ovation. Um, are you they okay? exploded? You just said you could see what the rock is cooking and red rain. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm great. Take, take That's your, good. I'm excited. Why can't I be excited? Take man? your pills. Hey, uh, around the same time, the rock starts using people's elbow as a finish. And, uh, Mick Foley has gone on record several times as saying he feels like this is the stupidest move in wrestling history. And this is a guy who put a sock puppet in people's mouth. Did you or anyone else feel that the people's elbows finish was ridiculous and request? That it not be a finish to a match? Like, did The Undertaker say, man, you're going to have to hit me with the rock bottom. I'm not laying there for that fucking silly shit. Yes, I thought it was absolutely, positively silly. I hated it. Um, I liked it as a spot. Nice ha-ha high spot in the match. I hated it as the finish. That's why... You know, he, he did everything else before it. So the setup and all the other stuff, he did the rock bottom and all that other stuff before he did the people's elbow. But when you look at it as people's elbow, no, that wasn't a finisher, man. Come on. And, uh, but you know what? They fucking popped. They went banana for the people's elbow. I love that you just worked in Pat Patterson. Thank you for that. The next week, October 5th, The Undertaker pins The Rock. And this is also where Vince was in the hospital after an attack from Undertaker and Kane. And Austin comes in dressed up as a doctor and attacks Vince in his hospital bed. And this is where the, the famous bedpan spot comes in. We also saw the debut of Mr. Sacco. Uh, just an awesome show that I'm sure will break down in long form at some point. So, if and when we put October 5th, 1998 on the poll, uh, you got to vote for that one. Now, the next week, see Steve Austin and The Rock would team up to take on Kane and The Undertaker, but it ends in a no count out. Uh, and I feel like right here, putting Rock with Austin is like the official stamp that he's A, a top guy, and B, a full-fledged babyface. Wouldn't you agree? In a test to see how they're going to react to it. You know, again, because... This is the, the first time that Rock's kind of on the same side as Steve now. So let's see how they react. Do they, do they, you know, pick one over the other? And that was an indication that, uh, they were both just friggin' red hot. Um, let's talk about, I guess, what's coming next here. And that's the whole rumor and innuendo that Austin maybe wasn't tickled with the popularity the rock was gaining. So we covered in early 97 that Brett had witnessed Sean and Hunter sort of burying the rock to the office. And you've kind of told us before that Austin was sort of making fun of the people's eyebrow and all that silliness. When did you first start hearing this type of stuff from Austin around this time? Around, you know, really around the time that rock really started getting the pops from, from the audience. But it was, you know, here's Steve. He's the top guy, and there's somebody nipping at your heels. So it's like you're looking over your shoulder. And to Vince, to anybody else, that's great. 
when your top guy feels somebody nipping at his heels and now he's fighting for his position all that much more. So you, you've got to be able to, he wants to protect his position and he wants to stay the number one top guy. If you, if you don't want to be the top guy, then you shouldn't be in the business. Yeah, no doubt about it. And these guys were definitely headed there. Uh, we should mention in this match that where they're teaming together, Mark Henry and D'Lo come to ringside a few minutes into the match. Uh, and then eventually they pull the rock off the apron and Henry gives them a few splashes to further uh, their upcoming match at Judgment Day, which would officially end the nation, I suppose. It happened that weekend. Mark Henry would defeat the rock, believe it or not, but not without some help. D'Lo was at ringside and he held rock's feet so he couldn't kick out of the pen. Uh, and rock is a new baby face at this point. It feels kind of weird to go from teaming with Steve Austin on Monday to losing to Mark Henry on Sunday. Who booked this shit? Vince Russo. Let's just bury Russo. Okay. Okay. I like it. Send your hate tweets to Vince Russo and say, Bruce Pritchard wants to know, why did you have Mark Henry beat the rock six days after teaming with Austin? There you go. I like it. Uh, October 19th, we see the rock defeat the European champion D'Lo Brown in a non-title match. And the following week, he would beat uh, Draws, Darren Drozdoff. Uh, the week after that, we're back working with Ken Shamrock, who at this point is the Intercontinental Champion, and The Rock gets the win by DQ. We should tell you that earlier in the show, McMahon has said he had a problem with the people, and he has a problem with the people's champion. And Rock had to win the Intercontinental title, or he'd be stripped of being the number one contender and be out of the Survivor Series World Title Tournament. After the match, Mr. McMahon, who was watching from the top of the ramp, told Rock that he's no longer the number one contender, nor was he going to Survivor Series, and that he wasn't the people's champ. He was the people's chump. Uh, and, of course, uh, you may remember what's coming. But this was really brilliantly done. Did you guys already know at this point what the payoff was going to be, or is this still riding by the seat of our pants? No, they knew all, knew what the payoff was going to be. Not a doubt. Um, November 9th, Rock would pin Mark Henry on Raw, and the stipulation of this match is that if he loses, he's going to be fired. Uh, so the ref goes down, and after the rock bottom and people's elbow, Shane McMahon, who was recently demoted to being a ref, ran into the ring and counted the pin. This saved the rock's job and got him back into the tournament at the Survivor Series. Uh, the big boss man, who was Mr. McMahon's bodyguard, was handcuffed to the ring post, and after the match, Rock went out and grabbed McMahon, who's sitting ringside in his wheelchair, throws him into the ring, uh, and JR says that Vince is getting McMahon handled. Uh, and then Rock beats up both Patterson and Briscoe, the Stooges, and then Vince slaps the Rock. Rock's eyes get gigantic, almost like they've popped out of his head, almost cartoon-like. Uh, and then Rock rock bottoms and hit Vince with the people's elbow to a massive pop. So at this point, you know, with the reaction and the way he's being booked with McMahon, it feels like he's sort of threatening Austin for the most popular spot in the company, right? Yeah, he is definitely. That's, that's the way it was written. It was, it was written so that you are so behind, you are so behind rock right now that he's got to overcome all of these odds. And you're kind of running that parallel along with Steve to get where you want to get to. Now that takes us to survivor series that weekend. We're in St. Louis. And The Rock is in a 16-man tournament to crown a new world champion. And the title was held up when there was no winner in the Undertaker-Kane world title match at Judgment Day the previous uh, month. So if you're kind of like, wait a minute, why was it held up? There you go. Uh, no winner for Undertaker-Kane uh, in the world title match. So The Rock is here, and he's supposed to wrestle Triple H. 
But Triple H is out with a knee injury. Uh, chat me up about the knee injury. Is this a legitimate knee injury or is this a Shawn Michaels knee injury? No, it's a legitimate knee injury. Okay. Fuck. Well, just asking. Maybe learn from the best. So when Rock is in the ring, Patterson and Briscoe come out and they call out the big boss man to face the Rock as a replacement. Now, it's worth mentioning the boss man had already been eliminated earlier in the night uh, when he lost to Steve Austin by DQ. So boss man ran to the ring and as soon as he got in, the rock inside cradled him for the pin. So the match literally lasted like three seconds. Um, rock advances to the quarterfinals, but there's kind of a fun story in this big boss man survivor series, 98 pay-per-view, right? Yeah, there sure is. You going to tell us, well, you know, Austin's, got his match and there was a spot in the match where the corporation all goes out and I'm at gorilla and, and I see everybody there and I send everybody to the ring and boss man was there. Boss man was there before, uh, we sent everybody to the ring and, and everybody goes to the ring and in the match, there's a spot where the referee goes down and big boss man is supposed to attack Steve Austin. The only problem is, they do the spot and I, and I'm sitting at gorilla and I'm looking around. I'm looking at the different cameras. Where the hell's boss man? Well, now everybody at the ring is kind of looking around on the outside of the ring. Where's boss man? There's no boss man at the ring right before they went out to the ring. Boss man says, Hey, I've got to go over a spot in the next match. Uh, can I go talk to whoever the hell he was going to go talk to? So boss man left and he was in the dressing room talking over a spot with somebody else. So his biggest spot of the night, he's not there. And I'm screaming, where the hell's boss man? And I'm, I'm doing it on the headset, but I'm kind of loud in the back because I don't, he's obviously not at ringside. And that was the tink heard round the world. My good, close, <laughs> dear personal friend, Jerry Briscoe, um, it's like, well, get Jerry, get in the ring and hit Steve. So now Steve's back. He's the biggest star in the industry. He's got a neck issue, and Jerry's been given a chair to go in and hit Steve from behind. And Briscoe uh, got in and was being very careful with the goose that laid the golden eggs, and he hit Steve, taking very good care of him, and as uh, Vince later on called, it was the tink hurt around the world. What the hell? I'm a little team guy. God damn. A, Jesus Christ. Couldn't break an egg. And Briscoe's like, and if I'd have hit him, Mr. McMahon, and I put him out, would you be happier then? God damn it. You know, so yeah, that was the big boss man story. He wasn't there for his spot. And then after Briscoe tinks him, then boss man comes running out and goes running to the ring about an hour late. So. That's a big boss man spot that got screwed up. In the quarterfinals, Rock finally pins Ken Shamrock on a pay-per-view. Uh, and boss man, who was at ringside, tried to throw the nightstick, but Rock caught it and uh, hit Shamrock with it and got the pin. Meltzer said it was nowhere near as good as their recent TV match and only gave it two and a half stars. But Rock advances to the semifinals. And here he would defeat The Undertaker by DQ in about eight and a half minutes uh, when Kane comes down and chokeslams The Rock, which, of course... Gets the Undertaker disqualified. Belzer gave it three quarters of a star, and now Rock's in the finals. So here we are, 
the finals for the world title for the world title in this tournament are the Rock and Mankind. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Mankind got to the finals uh, by pinning Dwayne Gill, who'd go on to be Gilbert, uh, and then he pinned Al Snow in the quarterfinals, and then Steve Austin in the semifinals. Vince and Shane come out for the main event here, uh, and Shane, who was against his dad for the previous few weeks, turned heel earlier in the show when he was the ref for the Austin-Mankind match, and he wouldn't count the pin for Austin, and they even flipped him off. Uh, so now Rock and Mankind are having their match, and eventually Mankind puts the mandible claw on the Rock, who manages to break it, and then hits the Rock bottom on Mankind, and then immediately puts the sharpshooter on Mankind, and what do you know, Vince calls for the bell, which of course is mimicking the prior year's Montreal screwjob finish with Brett and Sean at Survivor Series 97. Uh, after the match, Vince and Shane come in the ring, and they all group hug with The Rock, who we thought was our new babyface, but Mankind, who appeared in storyline to be the guy that Vince wanted to win the title, got on the mic and told Vince he didn't understand what was going on, and then Rock hit him from behind with the belt, and then landed another Rock bottom. Austin runs down and hits Rock with a stunner, and then he stuns Mankind. Meltzer gave the match three and a half stars, but this is one of the best done angles of the Russo era, at least in my opinion, because you didn't really see what was coming. It looked very obvious that the deck was stacked against Mankind, or as I just said before I corrected it, the deck was stacked. Uh, so the deck was stacked, sort of like those proceeds for proteins, uh, in Mankind's favor but it's actually The Rock, and I don't think a lot of people saw this coming. I mean, this is a, a great, well-written angle. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree, and and again, I, I give credit to Vince Russo here because I, the story was very well told. It sucked everybody in so much because you wanted The Rock so bad, and you wanted him to overcome that evil Mr. McMahon, and you never saw it coming because he was coming up just parallel with Steve, and you just didn't see it coming. And I thought it was beautifully done and pulled the rug out from everybody, and you could just feel the energy in that crowd just deflate because they had been had, and it was genuine, real heat and i thought that the whole thing was superbly done uh when did you guys lay out the storyline how far in advance because this is i mean maybe vince russo's best work and i think vince has even said this was his best storyline ever um i i agree with that i think that it was some of the best stuff that that they had done but it was uh probably i don't know maybe a month or two ahead of time kind of knowing where we were going with it and just uh having an idea that we were going to do the, the, the double switch with Mick and uh, Rock. Uh, where would you rank this as far as your favorite storylines from the company? You've told us before that you think the best ever was the double referee deal at main event in 88 with the double Hebner gimmick and Hogan and Andre. Is this on the short list for you? I would say it would be on the short list because it was another, it was another just beautiful way to get right back to Steve and uh, Rock. And it was another just, you know, it was Rock's first championship. And this was, you know, the anointment of, all right, kid, here you go. We're going with you. Let's see what you got. So, yeah, I'll give him credit for this one. I thought it was very well done. And overall, everybody involved, the the whole corporation and against Steve and then turning their focus to the Rock only to suck everybody in. You know, with mankind and the whole storyline, I thought was superbly done. 
This makes The Rock the second youngest WWF champion in history at the time. Uh, he was like 26 years and change here. And I think he's just a day or two short of Yokozuna, who's his cousin, uh, winning the world title. Um, the next night on Raw, Vince, Shane, and Pat Patterson are joined by Gerald Briscoe, Big Boss Man, and Sergeant Slaughter. And they're all coming to the ring to open the show. And Vince talks about the damn fools uh, and then said he'd like to introduce someone who isn't a damn fool. He's not the people's champion. He never was. He's always been my champion. And out comes The Rock, who hugs Vincent Shane and says he didn't sell out. He just got ahead. And he cuts a heel promo, bringing up the Rocky sucks chance, die, Rocky, die. Says he's never forgot that, and he wants to make sure the fans never forget it either. They do a promo here where The Rock says it's it's no longer um, the people's eyebrow. It's now the corporate eyebrow, uh, and it's the corporate elbow. So in the middle of all this uh, commotion, Ben says he wants to show footage and the camera shows or the big screen shows the back door and Austin walks in the arena to a massive pop. And then Vince orders that to be taken off the Tron. And then he shows footage of the last few weeks leading up to the survivor series. What do you know? Austin's music comes out. He comes out to a massive pop. Uh, and they show the video where a few weeks ago, uh, Shane was saying Austin gets the title shot the night after survivor series. Vince says he overrules it. And then Austin pulls out a legally binding contract saying he gets a shot at the rock tonight. And then he shows judge Mills lane on the Tron and says he has a binding contract and Austin gets a shot at the title tonight. I I brought all this up instead of just cutting it off at survivor series to ask how in the hell did you guys get judge Mills lane? His idea is this. (laughs) He had a show at the time. I get that. It feels random. Yep. I know, but he had a show at the time and it was a way to promote his show. So he was, he was fairly hot at the time. You know, he had a little bit of notoriety. So it's just another way to incorporate celebrity into the show and a little cross promotion <laughs> all at the same time. Why not? It's Mills Lane. So this, of course, is the forming of the corporation on this same show. We see Ken Shamrock join the corporation. And uh, later in the show, Austin would defeat The Rock by DQ when The Undertaker came in and hit Austin with a shovel. It's a super hot match. The fans are really ready for it. And the match gets an incredible 5.5 rating. Uh, And it tied with the May 4th Raw for the second highest rating of the year. Uh, The highest was back on April 28th at 5.7. So you guys had to realize right away, man, you struck gold with this whole angle. And now you had a brand new faction the corporation whose idea was the corporation how did that all come together the corporation was something russo and vince uh, came up with to kind of allow vince to have a group um he liked factions so it was a way that he could have more than one guy where he just didn't it wasn't him feuding with austin he could feed guys in there to feud with steve and he could still be able to go out and cut the promos and still be a big part of it so he could have his own faction the corporation uh, not a ton happening through the end of the year. You would see in November, the rock get wins over X-Pac and Al Snow on December 7th, Austin and mankind would team, uh, to take on the rock and undertaker. Uh, but they would lose by DQ. So, uh, undertaker hereby joins the corporation. And now we've got a, a, a real faction here. Uh, we'll get to the rock bottom pay-per-view on December 13th. Mankind defeats the rock here when he passes out in the mandible claw. I'm sure we're going to cover this show. Uh, at some point in the future, of course, the reversal would happen by Mr. McMahon. So the belt doesn't change hands. 
I've always been curious about this pay-per-view, though, because you guys sometimes named the pay-per-views and had posters and promotional items out well in advance. This pay-per-view is named Rock Bottom, and there's a massive photo of The Rock, and it's even here by the entranceway. Did you guys have Survivor Series mapped out as being his crowning moment well in advance of naming this pay-per-view, or was this just a happy accident? No, like I said, like I said, it was pretty much planned. And here's, here's the beautiful thing about that was you were able to tell creative services and people, Hey, this is going to be rock bottom because they could look at it. They don't have to know the creative. Sure. They know rocks on his way up and it would have worked whether he's a baby face or a heel. So it was rocks on his way up and, and no one really had to know the, the exact details of the turn and what the hell they were doing with the corporation. So they knew rock was was moving on up and it was uh his anointment if you will uh mankind and rock or something i'm sure we're going to cover in long form because these guys had an incredible series of matches here that really don't get talked about much the first one at survivor series this one here at rock bottom uh, of course we know the i quit match at the royal rumble the empty arena match at the super bowl uh the halftime show halftime heat the saint uh, valentine's day massacre there's just lots of stuff going on that we'll cover another time in the future. But real quick, I should mention uh, that the Raw right after this, we would see The Rock wrestle Triple H for the world title. And Test would come in through the crowd and hit Triple H with a pump handle slam while the ref was outside of the ring, allowing Rock to get the pin. And this is actually Test's debut. He was shown a few weeks prior during the Motley Crue performance, uh, and, and they actually did a concert. He's their bodyguard. But this was sort of a slick way to introduce him, and he winds up joining the corporation. Whose idea was the Motley Crue thing? Where did you guys find him? What can you tell us about Test? I'm sure we'll talk about him again at some point. <laughs> okay. Test and how he got the name, too, was we were trying to think of different ways to introduce him, who he could be. And we we knew that we had Motley Crue. Uh, they were going on a on a farewell tour way back then. How many farewell tours have they done since then? But they were coming around and they were promoting their tour and we were going to have them uh, do a performance on Raw. So we said, hey, can we have Test be like a bodyguard? And we'd had, we had somebody hit the stage during the performance and we had Test, you know, take them out. And, and it was like people are looking, hey, really impressed with him. So the name Test came from the guy that, that goes up like the roadie that takes the microphone and goes, Test. Test, 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 and, and or he could be test, like test me, and, or, and that's how. Don't think people made that comparison. What? No, um, was he ever going to tag with a guy named Winstraw? No, what, no, what about a guy no. Named, Winnie was and, and Winnie was uh, the British guy that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, so funny to me that this guy's jacked up and his his name is Test, and nobody thinks this is a rib. Like, I mean, they, they should have. He should have tagged with a guy named Anabolic, and instead of being, uh, you know, in the TIT tournament, they could like have been the in, Dick Twins, they could have been the HGH. Yeah, something the like hell, that. Hell, yeah. yeah, yeah, something like that. But um, it was it was a, just a different way to introduce somebody. That's all it was. December twenty first, we get see him out there. The Rock team with Tess to defeat Triple H and X Pac, and that brings the Rock's nineteen ninety eight to a close. What an amazing first two years in the business. We've got so much more to cover on The Rock in the future uh, that we didn't get to here, but we wanted to really dive deep into those first two years. So we covered The Rock's 
you know, early years and then coming into the business and then USWA and the whole Rocky Maivia mess, Nation of Domination, a couple of IC runs. And what a way to finish, man, two years into the business and you're the top guy, you're the world champion and business has really never been hotter. Is it, it, will we ever see a, a meteoric rise like that again? It feels like the top guys in WWE now have been in the business forever. And two years well, in here. I, I don't think we had ever seen then anything like it. And it wasn't, it definitely wasn't something that we planned for it to go that fast. And like you said, man, today, I, I don't know that we'll ever see that again from somebody, uh, initiation into the business, debut, bam, top guy. And top guy in the business, top guy, you know, walking red carpets, top guy that everybody wants uh, for personal appearances to come to the Academy Awards. There, there were two names. They wanted Steve Austin and The Rock. Right. You know, can, can, can they come to the Emmys? Can they come to the Grammys? Can they come to the MTV uh, Movie Awards? Whatever the hell they are. You know, I'm real hip on that kind of stuff. Um and these were the, the two hottest names in the business. And I don't think that anybody ever had such of a mediocre, mediocre, meteoric rise is Dwayne Johnson, the rock. And, um, I think it's a, you look at his career after he's left and look at what he's done in the entertainment business and movies saying, I think the same thing can be said there too. Let me ask you this. Um, it feels like there's something special about the rock. And I want to know if you can put your finger on it because he rose to the top very quickly in WWE. Obviously, he, before that, let's go back. He comes from the not the best maybe situation family wise. Uh, you know, obviously had some, some trials and tribulations as a kid, but then manages to get a scholarship to play football. Odds are way against that. He does it. Uh, then he overcomes all of the initial stop and start craziness in the WWE, manages to navigate his way to the top. He's the world champion inside of two years. Uh, almost nobody does that. And then he's gone on to conquer movies in a way really nobody ever has, especially from this world. What is it about The Rock? What is that it? What is that intangible? What's the one character trait that you think The Rock possesses that has made this thing happen over and over and over? Hunger and desire. He, he was, he was hungry, literally and figuratively. And he wanted to succeed so bad and he had a desire to be the absolute best at whatever he did. Still does. And he, he worked hard. Nobody works harder than the guy. Do you think, so, um, and, and this is kind of a joke or it's felt like a joke, but now it's getting more and more traction with him registering things and reportedly buying domains and things like that. Bruce Mitchell from the torch is convinced the rock is going to be our president. Do you think there's a real opportunity that the rock runs for the presidency? Um, there is yes. You know, stranger things have happened. Uh, you know, he's popular. We, we just had, you know, Donald Trump won it, won an election. And I do think that the rock is, is somebody that, people identify with he's got a he's got a true rags to riches story um i don't know if if the rock would want to take that kind of cut and pay uh <laughs> but i don't i don't know if he really wants to open his life up to that kind of scrutiny um 
and and have to relinquish having as much fun as he's having right now. But you never know. You never really know, man. Stranger things have happened. Let me ask you, um, you know, I know we're getting way off track here, but I'm just fascinated by the idea that wrestlers can do this in politics. And I guess if Donald Trump can and Jesse Ventura can, then, then and, and now Linda McMahon can, I guess anybody can. Kane. Uh, oh, Kane. Yeah. Kane's going to be mayor. I, I think come May or August or something like that. Chat me up. There's a rumor out there. A little birdie told me uh, a pretty reliable birdie. Stephen McMahon's going to run for Congress. Have you heard this? And would you be surprised? Uh, I haven't heard it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Man, that's some shit right there. Can you imagine if you've got Linda in the cabinet, the rock's going to run for president. I mean, Steph, if Stephanie runs for Congress, um, what? Well, you know what, man? I, you look, you look at the career politicians that have run this country for, for so long. And I don't want to get into a political discussion, but I'm not a fan of career politicians. Okay. I I get that. I'm just saying, can you imagine a scenario like, yeah, like I need Undertaker to run for like, you know, (laughs) I mean, the Undertaker's got to run (laughs) governor. Yeah. I mean, well, we got to put somebody, I mean, let's get somebody in a defense role. I mean, what if if Kane's going to run? We got to have the Undertaker do something. What's Stone Cold doing? Let's get him in there, and well, I'm sure Triple H will be good at it. He's the fucking game, right? Well, yeah. I mean, Steve Steve could be the the uh, ambassador of uh, whoop ass. Uh, Undertake Undertaker could just uh, be your whatever the hell. But yeah, it, it's why not? It's just amazing to me that this is a real conversation. That I mean, what the fuck is going on? Okay. You know what's amazing? You know what's amazing to me? I've worked with the president of the United States as someone in his cabinet. What is going like? This is so absurd that, you know, Donald Trump, our president knows who you are and you produced him on television. And now Linda's, you know, in the cabinet and Stephanie's going to be a congressperson and the rock's going to be president next. And Kane's mayor. Why can't we get X Pac in, in a in a power role? Let's make this happen. Sean Waltman. I know he could legalize marijuana nationwide, but maybe even worldwide. Yeah, let's and, do it. And he can feed the people them shit sandwiches, right? Conrad, how about you and I run? No, let's 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 get on the ticket. I, I have forty eight jobs as is, and and one oh, of my jobs. Um, one more won't make it. He's only the president. Well. I appreciate your offer, but I'll be vice president. I'm I'll run. You be my vice president. How about I'll be vice president of podcast? Can I do that? Yes. Okay. All right. As vice president of podcast, I say it's time we go to Facebook. Let's ask some Facebook questions. We've went long here. Let's rapid fire some. Bruce, are you ready? Uh, hit me. Ryan Burris wants to know any good poontang pie stories. Poontang pie stories the rock used to come the from poontang pie about was always extremely tasty okay i don't think you understand he wants to know if the rock laid the smack down um and if you were a party to any of that no it was not a party to any of that but i imagine if rock wanted to uh lay layeth the smacketh down that he, he could lay it any smack down that he wanted to so are you just going to toe the line here and say that when the rock was the biggest star in the world he was being a good boy uh, I can honestly tell you that I never witnessed anything. So there you go. Well, that's disappointing. I don't, I don't know that I'm satisfied with that answer. Besides HBK, did Rock have heat with anyone else, or is there anyone else he didn't want to work with? Um, yeah, there, there was heat with uh, Ahmed Johnson, but Ahmed Johnson pretty much had heat with everybody. There, there was, 
you know, a uh, little bit back and forth with those two. And I, I heard Ahmed, uh, or secondhand, thirdhand, however you want to say it, Ahmed telling a story about how he punked rock out. And it just doesn't ring true in any way, shape, or form. Some of the things he said, Rock said, and, and different stuff. Uh, I would believe Rock's version of that story uh, every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Uh, this is one I wanted to, that I saw that I wanted to say for here because I know you've got a fun story for this. Who came up with the idea for the Rock to give the nation gold Rolexes, but give Ron Simmons the framed picture of the best damn IC champ there ever was? I, you know what? I believe that was actually the Rock's. That was the Rock's idea to do that and be able to. Um, I remember, you know, that famous picture of the Rock with the fanny bag, yeah, bag and all that stuff. In that, wait, I don't wait, know wait. what kind did, of watch did, he's wearing. Did you just call a fanny pack a fanny bag? Yeah, the little fanny bag. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we got to get one. Hey, if you're if you're listening to this show and you can produce fanny packs. We want there to be a something to wrestle fanny pack because I need one of these to say doot, doot, doot on it. And we want to sell these. So if you can manufacture fanny packs for us, uh, please slide my DMs. It's a, at hey, hey, it's Conrad on Twitter. Or if you're interested in buying one, more importantly, because if there's a market for it, like, uh, you know, hey, yeah, other than you and I get back and away. Michael Hayes. That's what I'm saying. Does any, anybody else wear a fanny bag? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I want to sell the shit. So I'm not saying I personally want one. But yeah, we're gonna sell fanny bags. That's our next thing. Fanny bags. Fanny bags. Okay. I continue. Like it. Continue. I didn't mean to cut you off. The Rock. He's got the fanny bag picture. You're not sure okay, what type of watch. But, he's but the the funny thing is, is the, is that the watch is like a Seiko or something. Yeah, it's not what he wants it to be. No, and and so that was a big deal to him. You know, giving everybody Rolexes. So, so when he got his Rolex, and that was a really big deal to him, and he just thought it was funny to he would give everybody else Rolexes and hey, Farouk here. Nice picture of me. Uh, it's Just kind of nice of you. Outstanding. Such, such a good moment. Um, move. I loved it. Uh, was Pat Patterson a big defender slash proponent of The Rock, and did he help him out politically backstage? You know, Pat probably hurt Rock backstage more than anything because he was such a big proponent of The Rock. Um, you know, Pat, I, I give Pat Patterson credit for the one who discovered the rock who brought the rock to us and who really was a big proponent of rock pushing him. And that was taken the wrong way. A lot of times and that people thought that Pat was pushing him because they were friends and Pat, that's just not the way Pat is. He, he pushed him because he felt that he had an awful lot of talent. He liked him personally. They are friends, but uh, yeah, he was a big proponent. And I think that that hurt rock really sometimes more than it helped him. Because yeah, Vince didn't want to put heat on Pat. There's um, there's a story I've got. That there's a WWE superstar right now. I've heard this from a few people who everybody thinks is awesome. But one of the agents brings him up a lot in every meeting. And now it's to the point where I think Vince is sort of like, I'm not doing anything with him now in general principle. And you've kind of told us before that Paul Heyman had a habit of doing that. Like he would just needle this guy this guy this guy this guy this guy and then it yes. kind of works against that guy even though you're trying to help you're actually hurting right jr used to do that too J, you know jr would, would hammer a guy to death to, to the point where vince would just be so sick of hearing about it that yeah unfortunately it can work against you sometimes you got to pick your spots was there anybody you can think of that jr did that with besides dr death al snow really okay i didn't expect yeah. to hear that one Okay, let's get another question here. 
Uh, did they use throwing the belts into the water as an excuse to update the design of the Intercontinental title? Yes. There you go. Uh, we already had the title. We, we had redesigned the, the, the championship belts at that time. So, yeah, it was a way to get rid of it. I've always wondered, when you guys kind of phased out the classic Intercontinental title belt, which I think is one of the best belt designs ever, that was a Reggie Parks belt. You guys instead start using Joe Marshall, who I believe uh, first made the European belt for you guys. Why did you guys move away from Reggie Parks, do you recall? I think Reggie was getting too expensive, and we were just sourcing other people. Reggie was getting up in years, and Reggie wasn't doing as much as he had done before. But he was getting expensive. He was taking longer to repair things and to get things done for us. So we just sourced someone else. There was uh, there was Joe Marshall, and I want to say there was somebody else in there too. That but they were. I think Joe Marshall got the nod from Creative. Sure. Um, who did Dwayne usually ride with? Uh, himself, and he used to drive down. He used to drive down the road with the uh, interior light on. On the phone, leaning on the uh, leaning on the, the thing in, in between the divider, and would be on the phone the entire way. And but he always kept the interior light on. Why would he keep the interior light on? I don't know, but it drove me nuts. But you always knew it was him when if you saw somebody coming behind you 120 miles an hour with the interior light in their car. You go, oh, here comes Rock. He also used to uh, like to stop at uh, Waffle House, right? And he would get a dozen eggs, and he would ask them for a glass, and he would crack and separate his own egg whites. Wait, wait. He didn't order a dozen eggs. He said, bring me the 12 eggs. Bring me the 12 eggs. I got you. And then he would separate the eggs. And then, you know, sometimes if they knew who he was, sometimes he'd go back and cook his own eggs. But he would have his chicken breast and his egg whites. But he liked to crack his own eggs and separate them because I guess he didn't trust them. But that was a... A funny rockism. That's hilarious. Um, how much input did Vince have on Rock's persona once he got over? Did Rock sort of have carte blanche to do whatever he felt would work? Uh, when did that sort of creative freedom set in? Um, I would say that once he took the chance with with Triple H and kind of went off script, he had a little bit of freedom. But but he was Vince really helped mold him a lot. And, and helped him al- along the way an awful lot. Rock was, was heavily produced. But it was his talent that was able to pull it off. Did Dwayne have any apprehension to portraying a black militant on television? That's something I had never really considered. Um, he didn't want to be a black militant. I don't think he was a black militant. He, he was half black, half Samoan. And that was we were actually trying to put him in that role so that people wouldn't see it as a black thing. And (laughs) I know that sounds crazy, but rock did not want to be a black militant. No, he didn't. He didn't see it. He he just saw himself. Um, he really didn't see color. My opinion. Um, did the rock have any sort of apprehension about recreating the Montreal screw job at survivor series 98? Uh, are there any other names that you guys considered for Dwayne before settling on Rocky Malvia or The Rock? There probably were, but it was once, you know, the, the, the discussion came up as to what his name would be in, in trying to capitalize on his heritage and his, uh, his family. 
So once we got into that mode, there wasn't a whole lot of other suggestions other than trying to play off the Myvia or the Johnson name. So um, I'm sure there were, but once we focused on that, that's really all I remember is how do we marry those two legacies? Sort of a fun question here. Uh, did Rock ever consider going to WCW? It's always fun to sort of fantasy book something like that. Obviously one of the biggest stars in the business. It's curious to think how this may have all turned out had that actually happened. Do you remember there ever being any consideration or concern about him trying to explore other options? There was concern on my on my part, yes. And there was talk that uh, WCW was interested in The Rock when he was really getting hot. And he made it, you know, he made it clear to us that, that he was WWF, he was family, and that he wasn't going anywhere. Um, I always respected the hell out of him for that and the way that he did it and the way that he, he signed his contract for a, a term that he didn't have to sign as long as he was given opportunity. And that's all he wanted. He, he didn't have a huge guarantee. He had a decent guarantee, but it wasn't huge. And he said, uh, all I want is opportunity and all I want is be paid what I, you know, what I draw and what I earn. So there you go. I was going to put a bow on it this week, kids. Come see us in Detroit. Boxagimmicks.com is where you can pick up your We're tickets. not going to be in Detroit. We're going to be in Houston. I was in Detroit. Uh, Cornette took his thing out. Well, who's taking their thing out in Houston? They have Survivor Series. Not me. Not it. Not it. Well, you know what? We might find out who has a low-key big hog. If you'd like to know, cruise on over to boxofgimmicks.com because we're not coming to Detroit. We're actually coming to Houston. The day of Survivor Series, boxofgimmicks.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and vote in our poll. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And there, you're going to see something pretty cool. One of the most fun polls we've ever had. We've got the Hardy Boys. We've got Edge and Christian. We've got the Dudley Boys. And don't forget the New Age Outlaws. What do you want to hear next week? Well, let us know. Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And a big thank you again to WW2K18 for sponsoring today's episode. This is the biggest video game in WWE history. And they're back for WWE2K18. Don't forget, Seth Rollins is on the cover. And you're going to be closer to the ring than ever before. All the hard-hitting action, the new game modes, the deep creation capabilities. You can even make Bruce and I. All this and more is available now at WWE.2K.com. That's WWE.2K.com. And don't forget, it's available now. It's not a pre-order situation. You can go pick up a copy today, and you should. Right, Bruce? Hell yeah, and it's real simple to do, but you are going to love it. And the capabilities are endless. And also, don't forget brooklinen.com. And go on over there and get luxury sheets for a low price. All your betting needs, and use our code WWE at checkout. And at the very end, they're going to have a questionnaire for you. Tell them you heard about it on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard on a podcast. And thank you guys for supporting all of our sponsors, because we love you. We love you, and we love when you pick up shirts at brucepritchard.com. But most importantly, man, come see us in Houston. We'd love to hang out with you. They have Survivor Series, boxagimmicks.com. And uh, don't forget to like us on Facebook. We're pushing for bonus shows. Don't you want to hear the Royal Rumble 1992? Of course you do. Go make it happen, man. Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. See you next week on Something to Wrestle with. Me. Say it.
Go ahead. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.